I've spent years wanting to shove my fist down inside my pit of my stomach and pull all this evil out. I just wanted it to go away and I could never get rid of this vile feeling inside me, what he put inside me. What age can you remember the violence starting? From being born. Nearly every Sunday used to make me and my brother scrap. Like We were like two like Rottweilers fighting and he wouldn't let us stop. He wouldn't let us say submit until he said we had to submit. He believed all fathers should break their daughters in like and do. I didn't know it were in... I didn't know... Uh, he did tell me that he got a lot of friends who lived with their daughters as man and wife, but um, we couldn't have a baby together because um, it would be albino. He put my mum's engagement ring on, on my finger. He told me to stop calling him Dad, and he told me to call him Sam. We dealt guns to my mum's head, shotguns before. I'd seen him, like, with a machete... A uh, big machete, threatened to split her up the middle. And he said, if you don't tell me what you've been dreaming about, I'll cut you from you straight up to your throat. <sighs> Mum made us both um, a drink of cocoa, drinking chocolate, and she started crying halfway through drinking it, and she told me to stop drinking. And uh, she denies this, but she told me she'd lace them. She tried to kill us both. Come round front at stall with a pair of garden shears and she shoved them in my face. <gasps> she put these garden shears flush up in front of my face. She goes, I'll have you, I'll have you, oh like this gosh. with me. <gasps> he come round front at stall then and he put his head in my face, his nose touching my nose like that, exactly the same as her, and he put his face on my face and he went, I'll have you, I'll have you, I'll have you. Like that to me. Oh, my. Oh, my God. In carries a lesser charge than... Because it implies the child is complicit. Oh How can a child be complicit? They've got enough evidence to arrest an army of people. Why aren't they doing this? And it says, um, prove it. And D.S. Barnes said, they've not been lost, they've been destroyed along with everybody else's back from the 1980s. Oh, my God. So everybody's have been destroyed. Isn't this the same police that protected Savile? West Yorkshire Police, Leeds? Yeah, West Yorkshire Police. So oh, Bradford. It was, the, it was the same Savile police force then? Yeah. That protected police, Savile, yeah. that's, that's protected your dad? If I go down, I'll take 20 down with me, my dad said. Wow. Thank you for supporting our sponsor, HelloFresh. The box has arrived, and I'm so looking forward to the bean chilli and the North Indian sag paneer. So, Jen, what do you think of the quality of the ingredients? So, from looking at it, it all looks really fresh, actually, and for our busy podcasting life, I think it'll be perfect. So, Sean, what do you like about cooking your meals from scratch? Gets me off the bloody computer. Do you find cooking with HelloFresh easy and stress-free, Jen? Well, one of the menus I've been sent you can do in under five minutes which is perfect for my busy lifestyle what have you learned with hellofresh jen that i can actually cook how do you feel when cooking with hellofresh jen it gets me excited about cooking again how does it help you to try new meals you've never cooked before i was always terrible at cooking before hellofresh and now i can make a meal in 35 minutes 
plus 25% off the next two months using my code SEAN60, S-H-A-U-N-6-0. So click the link to get 60% off your first box. So this promo is only available until October the 3rd. After October 3rd, the promo will change, as will the link in the description box. All right, so today we have Carol Higgins on the podcast, and this has been kindly arranged by John Wedger. Huge shout out to John Wedger. He's such a pure soul. He's lost so much through his activism. He's got his own channel, so please support John Wedger. His link will be down there, as will links to Carol's book and all of her socials and ways to contact her. Now, we have a variety of interviews on this channel, which is a true crime channel. And the content that we're going to focus on today is particularly harrowing. So if you are not predisposed to watch such dark content, it might be best to go and watch something else. Or if you've got kids in the room or anything like that, this is definitely inappropriate. So that's my disclaimer out of the way. I'm going to introduce... Carol in a moment but because of the police requirement on this channel that we have a court order because of crimes of this nature and people who are survivors of these crimes we must ask a legal question which is Carol do you waive your anonymity? I certainly do Sean. Okay thank you. Right so just going a bit more into the introduction then we've got Carol's book here Conquering the Impossible. She's also going to do a second book and all the links will be down there if you want to check it out. Now, this story revolves around a documented court case. I've read it myself. I've got the paperwork right here. And I'm going to perhaps, because it's the first five minutes on YouTube and they don't want you to say things that are too strong, I'm going to read some of this, but perhaps skip over some of the words or soften some of the words and by no means softening what's happened here so um elliot appleyard was jailed for 20 years he was sentenced at leeds crown court today 25th of january to 20 years in prison for a string of certain type of offenses on 24th of january a jury found him guilty of five counts of the full-on act and 10 counts of the indecent act after an eight-day trial and then goes on to say that he manipulated and controlled his young victim and subjected her to a campaign of serious abuse as well as other forms of violent and abusive behavior over many years Claire Walsh from the CPS said, We welcome the sentences delivered today. The victim was subjected to a catalogue of, I'll omit that word, and physical abuse which blighted her childhood and overshadowed her life ever since. Her strength, courage and tenacity have been fundamental in achieving this successful prosecution. Appleyard committed appalling crimes and the lengthy sentence imposed today reflects the gravity of his offending. We hope that the sentence can now begin to bring the victim some comfort. And I won't read the 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 specifics yet, but we are going to get into it further into the video. Can you just pass me this? Um, yeah. So Carol has brought all of these photos and she's going to email them over to us as well. 
And this is from her father's land. Now, there's an area that, that looks like something's been buried. The dog's sniffing on it. Suspicious. There are dozens of kids' bicycles that are just all worn out and trashed around the place. There was a bottle that had... Well, did you believe it was it was some kind of acid in the bottle? Yeah, I believed it did have something where you put on a tissue to put over somebody's face. Oh Chloroform. God. Chloroform. I mean, if you could see these, and we'll, we'll try and put some of them in the trailer, this looks like a proper horror story. It looks like a sinister house. He's got, he's got all Have you this... seen the flowers on the box? It's like a shrine on the um, shipment container. Do you know who would put that With a freezer, it had a fridge in it. You can see the plug connected to it it looks like acid baths and pipes and plastic bags i mean who put the flowers there i don't know i think my dad put them there it's his land all right before we get into all this carol then we're just going to go back and um find out about what it was like for you growing up and where you were born i grew up in a house of extreme violence um with two siblings my sister donna and my brother Paul. Donna was a year older than me. Uh, Donna had severe um, grand mal epilepsy due to the polio vaccine when she was two years old. So she needed 24-7 care. And um, the seizures she had and the, the way she used to scream and just collapse was murderous. That Even that was frightening. And that was... Um, but the way my dad's voice was just as frightening when he used to um, shout at us and really aggressively and, you know, towards my mum and he used to leather us with his thick black leather belts. He had two. He used to make me bend over the settee with my bare bum on all fours and um, really beat me with the belt and leave big welts on my backside and I used to have to internalise internalize the pain because if I started crying, he used to say, if you cry, I'll give you th- something to cry for. He used to um, wallop me around the head a lot and I used to flinch when I walked past him. And then um, and he, he was um, violent towards my sister and my brother as well. Um, I'd never known him be sexually violent towards my sister or my brother. But he did tell me when he used to take me for a lot of walks by himself looking for scrap metal and breaking into skips to sell things on the flea market, he told me that he named me Carol after his first girlfriend, mm. and that my mum wanted to name her Rebecca, but he he, he got he named me and he named me Carol because of his first girlfriend, and um, and also my mum told me that he'd said to her when I was a little girl after watching a cowboy and Indian film that he believed all fathers should break their daughters in like names do, so I feel like he knew from me being born that he had, he planned to groom me and and subject me to. Was all this at this location, is this where you were raised, at this big expanse of land, was it? No, um, I, I grew up on a council house in Denbydale, in a council house in a village called Denbydale. And my dad did rent land from um, a, a man called um, Chief Inspector Richard Ellis. And he also rented some land off Judge James Pickles. He also uh, rented land off um, a man called O'Kell and he kept pigs on that land. Um, um, so he, um, 
He also that land, these pictures here, that that land belonged to Simon Walter Fraser from Cannonall Estates in Barnsley, Cawthorn Park, and that land was uh, on the way to Barnsley, and he never went up for tender, it never went up for auction. My dad bought that land apparently in nineteen in early late nineteen eighties, early nineteen nineties for three thousand pound. And he sold it for £198,000 in 2018 as he got sent down in 2019. So I, he did plan. He told the couple who bought the land he was going to live in New Zealand. But I put it all out on social media that that's what he was going to do because I was afraid while the police was investigating them, my dad that he was going to do a runner. So I put it all out there. But he didn't spend his time going to New Zealand. He spent all his time going to America shooting and hunting. So I couldn't understand why he would have gone to New Zealand. But then I do realise that when I got an harassment charge on me while they were investigating my dad, um, Sergeant Baraguanas, he's um, he refused to speak to me. He's got a daughter, or not a daughter, he's got a relation who lives over in New Zealand and she's the head of police and she's also on the Queen's birthday list, so I feel like I'm making a lot of connections. I'd rather not be connecting to, but it just seems really strange. Of course. What age can you remember the violence starting? From being born, and then uh, I had a babysitter come forward who used to babysit for me, and she said she stopped babysitting for me because when my mum and dad used to go out, my mum used to tell her to do the washing up and the ironing like we was made to do. I was made to do all the cleaning and helping my dad on his land. And... um, and they were going out, my mum and dad, and I was crying on the settee as a small baby and because um, she was going to be a witness in court with this. And he come to me and with his forearm and his fist, he come up to me and punched me on the chest. And I stopped crying then, so... But I'd been... Um, and you can remember that vividly? I can't remember that. Jane told me that, my babysitter told me that. Wow. When I were explaining, you know, what I was doing, you know, what... I was going doing to get my dad to court. She come as a witness and said, "You know, I remember him being violent to you as a child." She can she remember any more um, events like that? No, she stopped babysitting for me. She refused to babysit at that time. Oh. Yeah. How did your mum and dad meet? Um, my mum and dad met on a fairground. My dad uh, travelled on a fair, so and um, so he was one of fifteen, and he must have left home and he joined the fairground. Uh, we called it Feast, went at Feast, and uh, lived with them and travelled with them. And my mum and dad, my dad were doing waltzes or something like that, and my mum bumped into him. I think she was pregnant with a, another man's baby when she she met him. And my dad actually um, took that child on, which was our Donna, my sister Donna, who ended up with grandma's epileptic seizures. And um, then they um, lived with my grandma and granddad. I know this because this was told in court when my mum and dad had to give a background when they were witnesses in court in 2019. So they went to live with um, my grandma and granddad, which is my dad's mum and dad, for a small while. And then um, I think his dad was on the council or something like that, but they managed to find a house, a council house in Denbydale, and we didn't have anything in it. We had no carpets. We had, like, just, like, paper up at the windows, no furniture. And we found all our furniture out of skips and going, uh, looking off the land and finding things. So what was it like for you entering school then? And did people notice in school that, you know, you were things were going on at home? 
Yeah, yeah, they did. Um, I remember going to school many a time and I used to get picked on and I used to get called smelly and bugsy and things like that. And I used to go home crying sometimes because I was an apple yard and everybody knew apple yards because they were a rough family, you know, from they lived in all surrounding villages. And like I say, my dad were one of 15, there were, there were a lot of them and a lot of cousins. So um, I used to come in upset and my dad used to say to me, you get out there and arsehole them. If you don't arsehole them, I'm going to arsehole you. So I used to have to um, go out there, even though my legs were shaking and I was frightened, I'd have to go out there and and start a fight with somebody. And then he used to make me and my brother fight on front room. Nearly every Sunday he used to make me and my brother scrap, like we were like two like Rottweilers fighting and he wouldn't let us stop. He wouldn't let us say submit until he said we had to submit. So my dad taught me how to fight, so there's no wonder I won him in court after all these years. I mean... He did actually teach me how to fight. How old were you and your brother when he started fighting? Oh, we've done it for as long as I can remember. Wow. But being into teenage years and things like that, I remember getting my brother's head at corner at fire and banging it on side at fire. We, we We couldn't give in. We had to fight. He were a year younger than me. I mean, and my dad used to play fight with me all the time. He used to play fight and, um, on a, you know, get us in his bed, play fighting. And my dad used to hit me so hard. On his hands were like shovels. And he used to hit me so hard. But he used to tickle me so hard where he wanted to laugh but cry at the same time. And I'd always have my nightie on and my bare bum showing and... I've welts on my legs. And when I went to school, you asked me, how, what did school do? I remember school once complaining about the red marks on my legs and saying that, you know, accusing my mum and dad of hitting us. And for some reason, the school gave a public apology in the Uddersfield Examiner and said, we're sorry for accusing them. And mum and dad made them give a public <sighs> apology. And they did. Wow. They had a lot of connections then? Yes, my dad had a lot of connections. He won't be able to get away with murder, as the saying goes. Can't prove it, literally. And um, But, yeah, my dad was a police informant and he was well-known. A lot of people were frightened of my dad. The farmers surrounding people have come forward and said they weren't particularly frightened of him as a person. It's what he could do to their livestock, to their field... What he could like, him, he can click his fingers to the police, and for some reason they will just come out and protect him. It happened when I was trying to get him in court. Whenever I met my friends in a pub or out like that, the police would come and say, "What are you doing here?" And I'm harassing my dad, but I'm allowed in that village. I didn't have, you know, that wasn't. Uh, and like when I was meeting, every time, three times, every time, uh, the second time. Um, the riot van was outside the pub when I was going to be there. And uh, we, we were just sat in the pub, a few friends, you know, talking round and round a, a table with a few drinks. And they knew I was trying to get my dad in court. And, you know, they knew I'd written my book and we're just all getting to know each other and things like that. People who I hadn't seen for years. And then the police walked in the pub, two police officers, and um, they said it was Carol Higgins and... Uh, and uh, I remember my brother, because he was trying to stick up for me at the time, and he says, uh, I'm Carol Higgins. And then somebody else said, I'm Carol Higgins. And somebody else said, I'm Carol oh, Higgins. It, what, what was it? What, what the tried Spartacus or something yes. like that, was it? Something like that. And I just went, oh, it was so sweet. And I went, I'm Carol Higgins. And he says, uh, can I see you in a small room? Can you know? Can I have a private word with you? And he says, no, can we not speak in front of everybody else? 
and he's spoken from for everybody else and he'd been sent out. And my dad told the police that he was in the pub and I'd come on his drinking ground to harass him and he wasn't even in the pub. And so when the police got the harassment charge on me and it, the, he was, it was said that he was in the pub and I knew the lady, the landlord and landlady, and they would have said that, oh, your dad's here, you know what I mean, if, if he was. But my dad could lie to the police and for some reason... It could get away with it. I mean, how was he so entitled to have that sort of position with the police? Well, I just that that's the piece. That's what I'm trying to piece together because I've got um, a civil claim now against West Yorkshire Police for um, 35 years of serious systematic failings to investigate my dad. I first went to the police in 1984 and made a 17-page statement at Penistone Police Station. And they took me to Huddersfield Police Station the next day and I had internal forensic tests done and I was jumping up and down on blotting paper. They had me up and I was bleeding and um, I think they thought I was miscarrying. And um, they were taking pubes and things like that and putting them in test tubes and that, samples. And I thought then they were going to go to my dad's house and start doing forensics on his house. That's why, you know, they were doing it. And uh, But the thing is, that was the day after in Huddersfield Police Station, the day after I gave my 17-page statement. But when I gave my 17-page statement, the police said to me, an officer said to me, um, if, you, if um, your case goes to court, your name will be blackened and dragged through the mud and you'll be made out to be bigger, biggest liar and slag going. Could you handle it? And he says, but because it hadn't gone to court, you can always bring it back in the future, whereas if it goes to court, you can't, but your brother would be classed as a juvenile witness. And me, well, me and my brother living at home with my dad when the rape, you know, when the abuse would be happening. And, uh, you know, and so could you handle that, you know, being your name being blackened and dragged through the mud and being able to be... Um, made out to be the biggest liar and slag going and I said no but it gave me hope because it said you could always bring it back in the future and so um I tried to get on with my life as much as I could and I left school with no qualifications I couldn't I didn't hardly go to school when I was a child and then when I did go to school I couldn't concentrate all my school reports said daydreamer daydreamer and you know I, I couldn't focus and that um so I sat one exam and then I couldn't do it, and I thought, I'm not going back now, I can't go and put myself through all that. And so I left school with no qualifications and found out years later as well that I'm dyslexic. So going back to when the abuse started, mm -hmm. what age were you? Well, the physical abuse has been there since I was a child and mental abuse. But... but and the other, the sexual abuse has been going on for a lot longer than I realised because I was normalised, I didn't realise. So when I was walking past my dad, my dad would, like, um, get me nipples and squeeze them through my clothes and things like that. Like I say, when belting me, you know, with a bare bum and with a play fighting. But I didn't connect that that was all part of the grooming until I got older, sitting on his knee and things like that. And then, uh, but the um, proper um, kissing started when I was about 12. He started kissing me like I was uh, his girlfriend. 
taking me for more walks on my own without my brother looking for scrap metal and taking the dog out for walks. We used to train it for hunting with a duck whistle and things like that. And so it, it was, um, you know, Paul couldn't understand why it were always our Carol. I want our Carol to come with me. And I think my mum wanted, you know, just to get me get him out of house for a quiet life because of the violence, you know, and the way he treated my mum. He'd held guns to my mum's head, shotguns before. I'd seen him, like, with a machete, a big machete, threatened to split her up the middle. She'd had a dream, and apparently she'd had a sexy dream, and he wanted to know she'd been dreaming about, and by the time I get back home, I want to know who it is. And... Um, so this is that that make, that's a connection to what happened to me as well the first time he raped me. But anyway, he started kissing me from twelve year old, and that went on for a few months. And then um, um, he took the, he took the dog out um, and shot it in front of me. What? Yeah, we had a dog called Sam. Uh, and what uh, was he saying to you during this period of time when he was kissing you and shooting the dog? Was he saying things? He was like- saying things like "I love you" and like you. You're older than your years and you're so mature and, you know, I love the way, you know, you you just listen to, you know, what me and my mum talk about, you know, what things that go on between me and your mum and, you you know, you're beautiful and I called my girlfriend, I called you Carol, you know, after my Mm. first girlfriend and um, it just talked to me like I was an adult rather than as a child. And at this point, had the violence stopped because it was on to the sexual assault? Yeah, it wasn't as violent, actually. And then um, he sat me down, he shot the dog in front of me and sat me down, uh, sat me down on this broken pipe, Naylor's Pipe Works, where the, like, the, it's like a scrapyard for broken pipes. And he took the dog there and I didn't know we were going to shoot him. And he called the dog Sam. And then um, he buried the dog under the broken pipes, told me to look away. Then he come and sat outside of me and I was upset and that's when he first started kissing me like a, a grown-up. Mm. And um, Why did he say you shot the dog? In court, he said it's because it were worrying sheep, but he never told me it was because it were worrying sheep. And then he told me that um, it had epileptic seizures, but I'd never seen it have an epileptic fit because m- my sister had fit, so I'm sure I would have recognised one if I'd have seen one. And um, And... I just believed him, but I knew there was something wrong because I did say to my mum months later, I sat on the front doorstep and uh, I said to my mum, mum, my dad's kissing me properly like a girlfriend. What was your mum's response to that? Um, I told her, I said to her, please don't tell him I've told you because I was frightened of him. And um, so I, I never heard anything about it then. She didn't say anything to me. Is it anything at all? Not, not that I can remember. Does she, look, co- does she look shocked or anything? A bit confused and shocked, maybe, but not too surprised, no. And then at that moment in time as well, we saw him coming down the street, coming back from his land. So, like, the, you know, and I'd said, don't say anything to him, and I think she said, I won't. So the next thing I knew was the next day at school... Um, the teacher, head teacher, came to me and asked me to stay behind after school. Somebody was here to speak to me. So social workers um, come upstairs into the office at school and started asking me about him kissing me properly. So I started telling them about it. And then um, 
then when I got back home after they'd gone, um, my mum says she were leaving him. So your mum did tell the social workers? Yes, yeah, so she told the social workers, yeah. 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 And... Um, Just push your mic a bit closer. Yeah. So then um, she told the social workers um, and then... Um, and we left. And we, we left Donna and Paul with my dad. She packed a few things and we went to um, stay at somebody's house um, who she'd met on the CB radio because back in them days that's what... Everybody were into CB radios and they all had their own handles and, you know, one for for Paper Lady or my mum's handle were Whiskey Lady. And my dad had one in his car, CB radio in his car with his aerial on his car, or on a pickup truck. He always had a van. And um, and so she'd met this couple on the radio and they lived in a council house up in Cubley in Penniston and uh, they didn't have much money and they just let us um, stay in their spare bedroom and it were bare floorboards with a bare mattress on the floor and they let us stay there and we stayed there. And But before, she'd left my dad before and we'd gone to a battered wives' home, me and my mum in Newsom in Huddersfield, but she never took Donna and Paul there either. It was always me who she took. And then I remember being in that um, battered wives' home and my mum made us both... Um, a drink of cocoa, drinking chocolate, and she started crying halfway th- through drinking it, and she told me to stop drinking. And uh, she denies this, but she told me she'd lace them. She tried to kill us both. And and now, connecting the dots, he'd said to her when I were a little girl, he believed all fathers should break the daughters in. I feel like she knew what was going to happen. But she never stopped it, and she could have stopped it because... When we lived in that house up Penniston and we then got thrown out of there, she was seeing this bloke and a couple of blokes. I don't know why we got thrown out of there, but she got a newfound freedom. And um, we went to live somewhere else. Uh, and another lady were lodging. She were in next village, Millhouse Green. So we, she, my mum rented a little um, single bedroom and we had bump beds and we stayed in them bump beds. And then that's when my dad got in contact again. And um, he'd arranged to meet me in Barnsley Market. And um, I hadn't seen my sister and my brother for a long time. I'd started going out with somebody called David at that time. He were a bit older than me and we were all knocking about. And I were in a new school. I'd moved from Shelley High School to Penniston School. And... Um, but I felt like I was on my own a lot. My mum had got a newfound freedom. She was out a lot with a new boyfriend. And um, and I went to meet my dad on Barnsley Market and he just seemed like he were acting like a normal dad. And then, except for this, and then um, me and David were together. He'd come with me to meet my dad. And um, I was on this stall and my dad was saying, do you need anything? And, you know, I might have said a pair of jeans. I could do with a pair of jeans. And my dad bought me a pair of jeans. And... Um, I remember David stood behind me messing about and he got my hands and opened them wide and he, he started going, I must, I must improve my bust, something like that. Oh, oh well, my dad didn't like that. My dad, like, sent him home. Um, so he Did sent David him... know? No, we, he hadn't raped me at this time. Oh, so we, we didn't know about the kissing. He didn't know about nothing about like that, no. And how old were you? 13. 13. Oh Why did your mum never take Donna and Paul? 
I don't know, one bit done over in a children's home. And um, and then um, Paul maybe wanted to spend his time. Oh, I, I, Paul told me, when I um, when my mum left my dad, when he t- she just took me with him, she says to our Paul, I'm leaving your dad. And uh, she left him with a packet of 26. And he were 12. So what happened at this meeting After then? the market. Yeah, so I bought me a pair of jeans and then he saw me back to um, my bus, in, back into the bus station, Barnsley bus station. And uh, he started asking me questions about David. And he had asked me if I'd had sex with David and I said, yeah. And had d- you? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. What was his reaction to that? Um, I don't know. I think he was trying to hide his reaction to it more than anything. He didn't make a big deal of it. And I got on the bus and then uh, went back to Penniston. He's, he's gone back to Denbydale. And um, then we had another meeting. And then um, things were getting worse between me and my mum, my relationship between me and my mum in this lodgings. And um, and it, it just felt like a normal dad treating me like a normal daughter. And Bringing then, you back. So when I went back... Oh, so the night I said, I'm going back to live with my dad, my mum, um, it was in Linda's, in our little bedroom, in this council house. My mum's got these tablets and started shaking these tablets. Her hands were shaking. Her hands were shaking. She were like crying, please don't go back. Don't go back. And I think I were like, because I was a bit disrespectful, I were angry at her. You know, probably called her a few horrible names or something like that. And no, I'll I'll have a better life back at my dad's. I'm not, you know, I don't like it here. I'm not happy. And um, so, and she was trying, she was pretending to take this overdose. So I don't know if she actually took it, but I'd I'd been brought up seeing my mum take overdoses. I'd be, I'd come home from school and my mum would be like that on settee, like with empty bottles and outside of her and things like that. So I'd actually grown up seeing overdoses. I'd once come home from school seeing my dad hanging front rafters. My dad had hang, hung himself front rafters. My mum had like every time my mum threatened to leave him when he'd done bad things, he'd either go and live on his land or sleep outside on outside toilet and so we'd feel sorry for him because he'd be freezing cold or he'd like hung himself from rafters because my mum says don't come upstairs and I did I ignored her and I come up and I saw him hanging from rafters around his throat yeah and I saw him um with this machete gonna split her up too and she weed herself in kitchen so I saw all that happen and hold the guns to her head and things like that so anyway I went back to live with my dad and um then um so, and then um then my dad went to court and got custody of us. He went to get went to get legal custody of me and our Paul. And Donna, who had been living with my dad, had gone to live with my mum then. So he went and got legal custody through courts and my mum had to go and make us a water court because my dad said he was gonna take us to live in America where he went out shooting there. He had friends who we went out shooting in Appalachian Mountains and things like that. And he got a friend called Jim Pipkin who, like, he worked at Dallas, Texas airport and he had his own aeroplane and one of his relationships is called E.J. Pipkin. He's a senator over in America. And I've done my research on that. And um, so I went back to live with my dad. And then a social worker came and Mr Sykes, who would been in our life when we were younger, because my dad used to get done for being on sick when so for working he worked for farmers or 
uh, on the side. Um, somebody catch him uh, mending somebody's roof up ladders and somebody take a picture and shop him. To, and then, uh, you know, to social, service, uh, so, social security or something like that. And then uh, we'd end up having no money. And then, uh, but we'd still have food full of cupboards, but my dad used to have us empty the cupboards, put them into pot, cab or boxes, take them up into his bedroom so we could say to the social worker, look, we've got no food. So the social worker used to bring us food parcels and my dad had like, give, I remember him giving my dad a fiver out of his own wallet, out of his own back pocket. And that were quite a lot of money back in them days, back in 80s. And then it, but it was the same social worker. I remember how he looked now, little short, fat Mr Sykes. And we had a social worker called Pauline as well, a lady social worker. But this day, it was just Mr Sykes on his own came to the house. And he said to me, because you've been to live with your mum once and now you've come back to live with your dad, it's obvious you can't make your mind up who you want to live with. So if you change your mind, you'll go into a children's home like your sister. Mm-hmm. Now Donna were in a children's home in Home Firth and then she was also in a children's home in Coombs Hill in Dewsbury and she used to come home some weekends and she used to tell me that boys used to push soap inside a vagina. She wasn't allowed a lock on the door. So I didn't want to go into that children's home. Wow. You're stuck. You're stuck. (sighs) Good. How did it escalate from here? So then um, I stayed there, and uh, so it's me and our Paul living with my dad. And um, my dad went off to America, arranging this trip to go to America shooting with his friend from America, his pen pal. They used to write to each other. And um, he used to... um, He he wanted us to um, stay at my Aunt Hilda's house. And me and our Paul decided to have a key cut so we could have a party at our house while they were away. Hmm. Like teenagers do now, really, don't you? Yeah. 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 <laughs> you couldn't wait for them to go away. Yeah. <laughs> the yeah. normal things, aren't they, really? Yeah. You've just got to make sure the house is tidy. Yeah, just and try not get caught. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but, yeah. Yeah. but we did get caught big oh, time. No. Yeah. And because... Um, the house got trashed, the people we invited. My dad had, uh, my dad used to have guns in the house and he didn't have them in cage, he didn't have them in case or anything. He just used to have them um, lent up in the front room or in his bedroom and fishing rods. And he also had a, a load all in his bedroom. So he used to make his own bullets. So he'd, he'd had um, shot in one side, powder in the other. He'd have his cartridges, you loaded it, you pulled it down, he made all his own cartridges and stuff like that. So when they were away, people had invited to a party. They'd all try messing about with that, so they were shot all over. Tried overing it up, so it broke over. We'd had a fire in the room, and we emptied ashes in fire into the bin outside, and it set bin on fire because it were old. It were them little them bins back in the day, and it weren't looking good. Somebody they'd had a jar of glue, and that ended up up against Mona Lisa, what you've got a picture of, and oh. it were really bad. Plus... Um, Plus my mum, because my dad wouldn't let her have half of furniture when she left and he said, I'd rather sew it in half than give it you. So when he'd gone to America, she'd come with a trailer and a friend and they loaded the brock into the house and took half the furniture. So when we uh, when my dad come back, oh, were he angry. 
He was so angry. But he was more angry, really, that I'd, we'd had this party. Than the furniture? Yeah, really, yeah, he was more angry. And he said to me, who'd come to the party? And he'd come home and he said to me, he got a girlfriend called Jess at the time, and she lived in Penniston, and he went round to the public phone box on the next street to ring her, and he said, by the time I come back, I want to know what lads were at that party. And uh, and it all brought it back to me, what he'd done to me mum when he says, I want to know who you've been dreaming about, you know, when I'd seen him pinned up against wall with machete. And he said, if you don't tell me who you've been dreaming about, I'll cut you from your vagina straight up to your throat. <sighs> and I saw all that through banisters, sat on stair step. And, uh, so, and, and it, so it said to me, years later, this was obviously from when that happened a few years after, it said to me... Um, I want to know, oh, so you're going to be, there's going to be big trouble. And so um, me and our Paul's in house and I took a knife and slit my wrist. And then uh, our Paul come downstairs and he tried to tie some shoelace or something round it and he dragged me around to the phone box and he said, um, and so my dad got off the phone and they brought me back round home and my dad said to me, um, uh, it's not too bad where you need to go to hospital. And he bandaged it up. And he says, I want you to sleep in my bed tonight. He says, you're too mentally disturbed to sleep by yourself. So, and I thought he weren't angry with me anymore. And I thought, and I've, I've cuddled up to him, went to sleep, thought everything was normal. And then I woke up to him um, touching me. I, I felt this tickle inside of my belly. You know, your belly goes in sometimes when it tickles you there. And then um, then he put his hand down in between my legs, started touching me, and then um, turned me over and reached for a condom outside his, um, from his drawer, bedside cabinet, and uh, put a condom on and um, had sex with me. And then uh, when he'd finished, while he was still laid on top of me, I said to him, um, what would my granddad say if he knew what you'd just done? And I don't, even to this day, I'm a bit confused. I don't know what made me say that because I was never really close to my granddad. And, I, and he just says to me, um, and I just thought about him and my granddad were in heaven, but I would just, it was like I were in heaven with my granddad for some reason. It just come to my mind, his dad's dad. And I says, um, and he said, um, when, when I said, what would my granddad say if he knew what you'd just done? And he says, don't worry, sweetheart. He believes same as me that all fathers should break the daughters in like naked. But he hadn't broke me in because he'd already asked me about David. I mean, was it painful? I can't remember it being painful. I can't remember it being painful. Just confusing, not knowing really what was going on. And, you know, and, you know, he said he loved me. And I don't know what he did with the condom. They asked me that in court. I can't remember what he did with the condom, where he got rid of that. And then um, I just got up and. It just become a regular thing from then, just an, a normal occurrence. I didn't know it were rape because I didn't know it were rape. I didn't know it were incest. I didn't know. Uh, it did tell me that it got a lot of friends who lived with their daughters as man and wife, but um, we couldn't have a baby together because um, it would be albino. He put my mum's engagement ring on on my finger. He told me to stop calling him dad, and he told me to call him Sam. And I went, Sam? I said, what, what, your name's Elliot. 
And he says, yeah, but when I were on fair, you know, on feast, where he used to travel, and he says his nickname as a young, when he were younger, was Sam. So he, um, he told me to call him Sam. And then um, he, he wanted me to have a tattoo on my back with his name on it and my name on it, which I did. I think you've got a picture of the tattoo, which I had removed there. And then, um, and so I had the tattoo on my back and then I had that removed, started having that removed when I was 17 and I saw an advertisement in the yellow pages for tattoo removals at a tattoo shop in Rotherham and uh, I went there and um, because I felt like I were branded by him and um, so... But before then, and so what he did with the tattoo is uh, he went into my skin as if I were having a tattoo, but he had to go deeper than having a tattoo to break the skin, but with no so ink in the needle. Indian ink, I was going to say, so he performed this tattoo. So I went to this tattoo shop in, in Rotherham, and the tattoo artist, he could only do a small amount at a time. It was a big tattoo like that because it was so painful. So he'd get a gun, a needle, but without ink in it, as if he was having a tattoo, but he'd have to go deeper than having a tattoo because he'd have to go as far as the ink had gone, you know, in my back, to break the skin. And then he'd put acid pen on, and the acid pen will bubble the ink out of my back. So I, it took me six years to go and have that done. Hope you're enjoying the podcast. There's a word from our sponsor, Rocket Money, formerly Truebill. If you're missing your credit card payments or you need to make a budget, you need our favourite financial app. Rocket Money, formerly Truebill. So why did Truebill change its name to Rocket Money? I'll tell you what I heard. Truebill, now backed by Rocket Companies, has grown from a bill management app into a full-on personal finance empowerment tool that helps over 3.4 million people with budgeting, lowering bills, cancelling subscriptions and more, saving each of their members on average $700 a year And with all that growth comes the next evolution in Truebill's story, a new name. Bottom line, rocket money is everything I've loved about Truebill, but with a fresh look and feel. Start cancelling your unused subscriptions and save money at rocketmoney.com forward slash Sean, S-H-A-U-N. That's rocketmoney.com forward slash Sean, S-H-A-U-N. Or download the app from the Apple App Store or Google Play Store. Thank you for supporting our sponsor, Rocket Money. Link will be in the description box if you're watching on YouTube. But then um, I'll go back to when... um, So I... um, The abuse happened nearly every day for about a year and a half. And then um, the full-on sexual abuse, the kissing started when I was about 12, but then we left, didn't we, and I came back. But I didn't know what he was going to do. I'd forgot about it because the social workers hadn't mentioned anything. And I'd gone back to school, nobody come to school and said anything. Nobody come back to my mum's. My mum didn't send social workers again and say, she's come back, you know, they already been kissing her. Nothing was said about it. My sister were living at home or my brother and, you know, my school friends were over there and... I just got, you know, tied up with everything else back home. And then he normalised that for me, you know, having sex with him and he used to make me have oral rape. He got done for that and masturbation and masturbate him, reading porn magazines to him. 
And then uh, one night I just couldn't take it anymore and he used to stop me from going out with my friends and call me a slag or if he saw me up village with my friends, my brother would come running up the village and say, my father wants you now. Because he'd be thinking I was going off, he'd be jealous, you know, thinking I was going off with, you know, the lads or something like that. Was your brother aware of what was going on? One time my brother walked in the room um, into the kitchen and my, my dad was full on snogging me. And I, Paul, like, just, I remember him stood there in the doorway and I thought, well, how's my dad going to get out of this now? And um, I, can't, I don't know what has happened. I mean, my dad said, it's all right, Paul, it's not what you think. And then he must have talked his way out of it for some reason. But Paul used to see him in, me in his bed on a Saturday morning when all this came out in court as well. Paul was a witness. Him seeing me in bed and just seeing me with me underwear on and things like that. Mm. Um, but the, the police said Paul would be classed as a juvenile witness back in the day when I said Paul had seen things to the police when I gave my 17-page statement. But apparently the, they said that he wouldn't, they wouldn't have said that, they would have said he was an hostile witness, but I remember them saying juvenile witness to me. The fact that he wanted to be called Saturn, mm. do you think something happened to him in the days when he was on the fair? No, I think... Uh, the fact... You know, obviously, his name is Elliot. He wants to be called Sam. He was in these fairground activities for a while. So do you believe something happened back then? I've not thought about that before. That um, I don't know. I know he slept with a lot of girls back then on the fair because he wouldn't let me go to the fairground when all my friends were going when we were at school, meeting up. He'd never go to, let me go to Shat Feast, which is Skelmanthorpe. Shat's a nickname for, for Skelmanthorpe. And he would never let me go because he knew what the men on the rise was like because he used to work on them. Something. What happened to your boyfriend then? Did he run him off? Uh, he never contacted him or... Um, I can't... It, nothing happened to David. He just disappeared, did he, David? David, yeah, just disappeared. Because he lived in Bradford as well. He used to come and see his mum. It was uh, it was his mum who owned the lodgings house and he used to come back and see his mum. And then... Um, you weren't allowed to have another boyfriend, probably. I wasn't allowed to have a boyfriend and my dad were play-fighting with me. He had a girlfriend. When he were doing all this to me, he had a girlfriend called Jess... And even in front of Jesse, we were play fighting in, in the front room in our house and he were giving me love bites. In front of this woman? And yeah. she didn't see anything wrong with her? No, he saw it, it as play fighting. And he was, he was stamping me so other lads wouldn't be interested in me or probably they would think I was a slag or something. But he used to give me love bites. So we were doing it when he'd already got a girlfriend. And then... Um, and then one day, he wouldn't let me go out with my friends. He would always go into the pub every night or going out every night. He went out every night and he wouldn't let me out. And um, this one day I was crying and saying to him, just leave me alone. He'd, we'd been, he'd been having sex. That's how I thought it. I didn't know they were raping me. We were having sex with me. He, um, he'd, um, he'd had me down in the front living room on the rug and the fire was, was lit because um, the big open log uh, coal fire was... And it was roaring, this log were on it, and it was roaring heat coming from it. And our lady, he, he, he told me to go upstairs and get a condom out of his bedside drawer, and uh, which I did, and I come down. He used to make me put the condom on with my mouth sometime as well. And he used to make me play with him until, you know, got hard. And then he um, he put me, he laid me down on the front rug, and I, um, I, I said my legs, he, he climbed on top of me, was having sex with me. 
and I tried to keep quiet, even though my leg were hurting. I was, I wanted to, I wanted to get it over and done with quick. And if I made a noise and pretended I, I liked it, it used to make it make him come quicker. It used to make it be over quicker. Anyway, I, I couldn't stand it anymore, and um, and I write about this in my book as well. And um, I couldn't stand it anymore. And I says, uh, Dad, my leg's burning. Because I, I couldn't stop calling him Dad, even though he said, call me Sam. It was a habit to call him Dad. So I says, my, my leg's burning. And uh, and he got off me to move my leg. And he says, you're only fucking saying it because you don't want to do it. And I went, no, I do. I do, on, I, I do. I promise I do want to do it. So I always made him believe that it was something I wanted to do as well. I didn't kick and scream. I felt like I had to do it to keep the peace because I feared him. I was, I was, I grew up in a house of violence. I've, I feared him. This is, I, this was my protection mechanism. You know, it was a way of safeguarding myself really from more violence from him. So between the abuse, would he speak to you like a girlfriend? Yeah, he'd speak to me like a girlfriend and I had to be off school and I'd cook tea and one day I couldn't, I made like liver and onions like my mum used to make it and I didn't cook it right and he threw the, dish up against the wall and he used to shout at me and he used to keep me off to do all the cleaning and cooking and tending his land. I used to have to pick all the turnips and wash them all off or, you know, he used to take his tater picking and he used to work for the farmers driving the tractors and I used to um, work tater picking and on my dad's land and doing all that. And going to school? For the amount of times I did go to school, I didn't often go. We did have um, truancy officers and, you know, police bobbies knocking on his door sometimes and rent man, my mum used to hide us under cupboard sometimes, under stairs, went rent man come and yeah. things like that. But we got all his clothes from jumble sales or from skips or from hand-me-downs, you know, we never really had much. So when you tried to stop it, what happened? So that night I tried to stop it, um... I said I'd had enough, I didn't want him to do it anymore and I remember me laid on the floor crying hysterically saying just leave me alone, leave me alone and uh, I want you to leave me alone and he kicked me in the stomach and he said um, just get up, you're pathetic and um, and I was just saying I just want you to leave me alone and he just kept saying just get up, you're pathetic. I can remember him looking down on me and then um, and me laid like in fetus, you know, trying to protect myself. And I used to lay in fetus position in bed trying to protect myself because when he used to come on front pub, I used to try and pretend to be asleep and he used to come in my bedroom and get my hand and take me out of bed and take me into his bed because it was down the corridor so Paul wouldn't hear in the next bedroom. And then um, he went. I waited while he went to the pub that night and uh, I got on the. I walked up the village and I got on the bus and um, from the Salvation Army steps... And I got on this bus and I got it to Penniston. I knew I had to get two buses to where my mum were living now. And I'd waited while I was like nearly 16, 15 and a half because the social worker had said, if you move or go back to live with your mum, you'd be put in care. But I got to a point where I probably didn't care if I got put in care, but I just needed to get out. And um, and then I got, on, I got a bus to Penniston and then I couldn't believe it. My mum actually were getting on that bus from Penniston to Thurgoland with her boyfriend, Carl, and she was like, what are you doing here? She was sat on the back, she, she was sat on the back seat of the bus and I got, I were on the bus and then I got on the bus and I saw him. She says, what are you doing here? And I told her that I'd run away from my dad's and what he'd been doing to me. And um, we got to Thurgland, we got off the bus and she walked across the road 
to the public fo- uh, to the public phone box, and she says, "Where's your dad now?" And I says, "Is it the Denbydale Payall where they were drinking?" And um, she rang the Payall, and she they brought him to the phone, and uh, she says, um, "Our Carol's here with me. She's told me everything," and he says, um, "Fucking prove it." To her. Oh, my God. Yeah. How did that conversation go with your mum telling her? I can't really remember much of the conversation because, like, I don't know if I was stood outside the box, phone box, but that's what my mum told me he'd said to her. But she didn't even use them words. She didn't swear. She says um, his words, how I saw it, he can't prove a thing, but in court it come out that he'd said to her, fucking prove it. Arsehole. So where did you go next? So I went to live with my mum and then um, uh, she wanted me to go to the police and um, and I wouldn't because I felt like it was my fault that I'd been asking for it. So a week later, I did go to the police. That's when I gave my 17-page statement and then um, I don't, my mum wasn't in the room giving my statement. She was, I don't think she was. And she was sat out on a bench, something like that, in the police station. And then, um, oh, oh, was she in the room? And then um, that's when they said to me, when I gave my statement, that uh, if this goes to court, my name will be blackened and dragged through the mud and I'll be made out to be the biggest liar and slag going, could I handle it? police officer said it to me. And then he says to me, because it's um, not gone to court, um, you can always bring it back in the future, whereas if it did go to court now and it got thrown out, you wouldn't be able to. Uh, Plus your brother would be classed as a juvenile witness. And like I say, he said, um, can you handle that? You know, being treated like that in court? And I said, no. And then... um, they told me to go to Huddersfield Police Station the next day and have them internal forensic tests done and that, jumping up and down on blotting paper. Mm. And then next thing I knew, they come to my mum's house probably about two weeks later or some weeks later and said, um, we're not going to press charges, we haven't got any evidence. So they're completely useless then at yeah. that point. I'm still getting over the blotted paper. Yeah. It's just humiliating. Yeah. Yeah. And and I probably wouldn't have been pregnant anyway because he did always use a condom, but there was a time when I thought I was pregnant. What happened there? Because um, condoms do bust or, like, or some things can happen, but there was a time I thought I was pregnant and, um, and I told my mum, and it was still while I was living with my mum, but I'd gone to, I'd gone to see my mum. So when I was living, uh, it was while I was living with my dad. I'd gone to see my mum, me and my brother had gone to visit my mum when I was still living with my dad. And it were awful because I I used to be so angry, I used to call her a slag and shout at her and things like that, you know, on the street and stuff like that. I was so angry with her. And um, because she confronted us with it and said, has he been, you two have been sleeping together, something like that. And And I denied it. But my dad had made me feel like I was his girlfriend that we were together. Yeah, we're actually defending him at this point. It's like Stockholm Syndrome, isn't it? Mm. Yeah. Yes. 
Yeah, I believed he loved me. So how on earth did you move forward from something like that? So, um, so I went to, um, so I went to live with my mum. The police came and the um, said they're not going to do anything about it. And it was a difficult relationship between me and my mum. And then um, my mum tried to get me therapy, but apparently the therapist said it's you who needs therapy to my mum. And uh, and then um, she th- she she said to she said to me, and I've got it in writing. She wrote a letter to me. She says um, she wrote a letter to my sister before my sister took her own life. My sister's dead now. She's took her own life. And she um, she wrote a letter to me, Donna and Paul. And in my letter, she put. Carol feels guilty for what's happened to her, for um, for um, going back to her dad's. She shouldn't have gone back. What a price she paid for that pair of jeans. And, um, and when she'd had enough of being treated like an adult by him, she came back to me. And what the hell did she expect me to do about it? And um, a few months after that, she threw me out. She says, I've done my job as a parent now. You're on your own. And she threw me out at 16. So I were working um, at um, uh, SR Gents at a sewing factory on a YTS scheme. And um, and plus I was seeing a boy um, and his mum and dad were really nice to me. And I'd met him on CB radio and we'd started courting. And he lived over in Barnsley. And it turned out that his cousin was my manageress at yeah. SR Gents. And my supervisor, Sharon, two Sharons, my supervisor were called Sharon and and my manageressa, manageress were called Sharon <laughs> and they were best friends and they kind of took me under their wing and they um, they bought me some um, calms, them tablets called calms and they bought mm-hmm. me some chocolate and the, um, I'd nowhere to live so I was staying at my boyfriend's mum and dad's house Till I found somewhere to live because my mum had kicked me out with just a bin line, a bag full of clothes. So th- that, this was second time I'd been thrown out. We'd been like, well, first time I left my dad's, I went back for my clothes and um, I wanted my Bible, my children's Bible and some of my armadillo and some of my toys from when I was growing up. And he wouldn't let me have them all. He'd let me have with a bin line, a bag full of clothes. So that when I left my dad's, that's all I had. And so when I went back to live with my mum and my mum kicked me out, she kicked me out with just a bin line, a bag full of clothes as well. That's all I had. And so I had to start again. And luckily, Shirley and Roy took me in. And Sharon and the other manageress at work, they went looking for a rented house for me. I was looking for somewhere to stay. I found this um, big house on Grove Street in Barnsley and they were just like single rooms. And I went to look at them for somewhere to live, but they told me I couldn't have a lock on my door. And there were builders in that building and I didn't stay there on my own with them. And they said to me when I told them, when they could see me looking for somewhere to live and I told them that these were the places on offer, they were saying, we'll find you somewhere to live. So they found this um, guy called Ken Mitchell on Doddeth Road in Barnsley and he had a van hire as well, and um, they found this rented house for me, an old terraced house, no central eating or anything like that, not modernised or all. And, uh, and I didn't know until years later, they obviously must have been the guarantor for that house for me, because I remember Sharon saying to me, now you better come to work every day. And this YTS scheme, I got paid £27 a week, 
and my rent was £30 a week. So what I had to do on a Friday afternoon is queue up at Barnsley Town Hall for rent and rates rebate. So while my friends were enjoying themselves, I were already domesticated, having to look after myself at this point. And then I went to the doctors and I told the doctor that I was suffering like um, with depression and anxiety and things like that. And um, he said it wasn't you who needs help, it's your dad who needs help. So that, so that's twice they've said that to my mum and they've said that to my dad. Anyway, my um, um, friend Julie, who I worked with on the YTS scheme, um, we heard about rape crisis. Um, rape crisis was in Sheffield, so I used to get. We used to finish work at one o'clock on a Friday afternoon, and we used to get on the train, me and Julie, and we used to go to rape crisis, and that was the start of my counselling journey. And I've been in therapy now for thirty-five years, on and off, and I'm, I'm still in therapy now. How different was the attitude of the rape crisis people versus the police back then? The, the rape crisis were brilliant with me. Yeah, it really helped. Did you finally think that things were going to be turning around for you because you had a sympathetic ear from these people? Um, I didn't think things would be turning around for me. It didn't feel so much like that. It just felt like I were able to get out what was going on inside me and somebody was listening. You were being believed. But I was, still, I was still really a child at that age. And for some reason, I don't know how this came about, but I ended up having a social worker come to my house. And um, and then uh, she told me to write everything down, what had happened to me, to try and get it out of me. I'd not heard the, the rape crisis hadn't, hadn't really told me to do that. So she told me to do it. And I've still got this, and this is going in my next book. And um, so I've still got these letters that I wrote. So I found out that writing was therapy for me at the same time and I could write down what happened and what he did to me and I started going to other um, um, therapy places through the NHS or, and they used to give me homework to do and I used to start writing things down now and it's just connecting to me now that's probably how I was even though I, I think I consider myself not being um, you know um, literate because at school I didn't really go to school and I, I wasn't confident to even string a sentence together. But probably that's where my writing skills come from, having to do all that <laughs> therapy work that they used to, you know, give me to do and write my feelings down. And I've got that in a blue folder now. And that blue folder, um, I gave that the police, years and years of therapy. Police wouldn't touch it and use it as evidence. And that was, that, that you know, I took that to court. The, 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 the amount of information that the police ignored and evidence. I used to get so angry and frustrated and say, they've got enough evidence to arrest an army of paedophiles. Why aren't they doing this? And it, it, it took me six attempts. So the second time I went back to the police, I'd met my husband. I had two children. We got married and I was trying to live a normal life and I couldn't. I was back in therapy again. Um, my husband said, you know, the abuse affected, abuse affected every day of our marriage uh, to the police, you know, when he gave a statement to eventually try and get him, you know, and this last time the police took a statement from him for the first time as well in all them times. And um, had you ever heard from your father again after you left the house? Did the communication stop? 
Oh, right, yeah. Um, I had heard from him because what happened then years later, um, the communication stopped for years and then um, after after um, I broke up with my husband, um, after a 15-year relationship, we were married 10 years, together 15 years, and I'd met my husband and he was a control freak and um, I needed to do my own thing in life and he just wanted me to do what he wanted, build his million-pound empire and stop at home and do all the cooking and cleaning. It was my job to do the kids' job and jobs, you know, and he didn't play any part of that. And, and so I um, I, I um, left him and then um, something um, took me to church one morning I was going to my therapy up in Barnsley Hospital and I uh, I felt broken and I didn't feel like I could go on anymore I felt like I'd failed in my marriage I was struggling on my own to bring two kids up and uh, I thought everybody were robots I thought human beings were actually robots we've got one here all cold and that you know with no feelings and uh and Sean's not a robot, is that what you mean? Oh, it's yeah. not about my work ethic. Oh, right. <laughs> okay. I actually call him the robot on my phone. Yeah. <laughs> I'm called the witch on the dad's phone. Oh, no, God. the kid's dad's phone, yeah. The witch. Oh. Yeah. Oh. And uh, um, so and I took my kids to school one morning and I had met a lovely lady in the playground and she went to church and she was talking to me about the church that she went to. And I thought something's going to... And so I went to this church one, one morning and it was Valentine's Day. And the sermon was about how husbands should love their wives and how wives should love their husbands. And just tears, floods of tears come from my eyes and I wanted to fall down on on my hands and knees and and just cry. And I thought, why didn't why don't we know about this? Why don't we know how to love one another? And I found through found out through Jesus that you know that is possible, and that's where the bar was set for me then. And um, I always aimed for um, to be able to you know love out of find love and peace. That's what I was looking for. I wanted love in my life. I wanted peace in my life. I, I, I couldn't stand anger. I couldn't stand aggression. Whenever I come up against it, it was like I refuted it. My son got anger problems because all the male role models in my family, from my dad, from his dad or, you know, from his dad's dad, you know, he'd not really had any, you know, role models that, you know, and plus seeing my anger and, you know, my kids sometimes, you know, used to wonder why when I got drunk, you know, why I behaved the way that I did and I got angry and lost my temper so, and I used to shout a lot. And then I once went to the doctors and said, when Jake were little, um, I need some help. I says, um, you know, I, I, you know, I can't control my son. Even when I shout at him and smack, smack him, he won't do as he's told. And she asked me about um, going on a parenting course called the Webster Strachan Parenting Course. Would I like to go on it? And I'm so grateful for that course. I'm glad she didn't take him off me. <laughs> I'm glad she didn't send all troops in, you know, at that time, you know, to say, you know, and I went on this parenting course um, above, uh, on Doncaster Road in Barnsley, above the pram shop. 
and it were a 12-week course and I learnt about time out and lots of other parenting skills and they gave me this book to read and they wanted my husband to go on it as well and he wouldn't go on it, he only went on one session. So that didn't help because he were, I knew he smacked Jake and he used to like, you know, you know, do a print tell the kids to get dressed and undressed in the in the car at the top of the street so when he dropped them off they didn't have to go back in the same clothes, you know, dad sent them in and things like that. And um so they were, you know, it were it's breaking that chain of abuse. It's not an easy thing to do. These cycles of abuse have, have run through both sides of my family. My mum had come from a family where she'd been abused as well. And, you know, and there'd been abuse in my dad's family, even though my auntie had said that they hadn't. I'd had other sisters and cousins come forward and say that they'd been abused. And um, and my dad sexually abused his cousin and uh, other girls in, in the village. So it wasn't just me he'd raped. So I knew we had, I had to stop this. It got to a point where this wasn't just for me now, where I want justice. I need to get justice for other people because I knew... He was doing it to other people. So did, he, so, so, sorry. Um, did he contact you then after so many years? You said he, he was... Yeah, so when I went to church and that happened and I wanted to know what love is, you know, and Jesus was t- telling me, I started going to church then and um, it was really weird. There were one one sermon and uh, it, I just got... I was listening to it and it was just like this rush through my body. And uh, I didn't know later that rush is called adrenaline. And so this rush of adrenaline come through my body, it was the most weird feeling. And something in my head was saying to me, you need to go to your dad's in Denverdale. You need to go to his house. You need to ask, for, you need to tell him that you forgive him. And it, and it, well, it was Father's Day. It was, it was on Father's Day. That's when I went to church, it was on Father's Day. And something told me on Father's Day in that church, you need to go because I was trying to learn through going on the Alpha course, Alpha Plus course. So I used to go on the on the courses, um, Christian courses, workshops and that. And um, so, um, and I, I was feeling like forgiveness was the only way to break these chains that was wrapped around me where I couldn't break free from from the incest, you know, from, you know, and all the things he'd done to me. So... When I went to um, uh, his house, I, I actually bought a card before I went to his house in case he wasn't there. So I wrote in it, um, Dear Dad, Happy Father's Day, um, love from Carol, um, I want you to know that I forgive you. And I was just trying a technique. I needed to put my faith into reality and see if it worked. So, um, but I knocked on the door and... Um, he um he answered uh, his wife answered and um she said come in and then she went into the front living room and so it was just me and my dad in the kitchen sat around the kitchen table and he started talking to me about uh how him and my mum used to argue all the time and I says to him um I know about how you my mum used to argue all the time I says I was there I did hear it I says but what you did to me I says you was an adult and I was a child and I thought you would at least be sorry for what you've done. And he went like this. He looked up to the ceiling in his kitchen. He went, oh, I'm sorry. 
inaudibly, like, I went, I'm sorry. And then I says, I thought you might at least look me in eyes and say it. And, it. and he just like, stared at me. And then I just got up and I says, anyway, I've come to say what I wanted to say. I forgive you. I'm going now. And he hugged me and he kissed me. Ooh. He kissed me here on my shoulder with his wet lips like he used to kiss me. And uh, and I thought to myself, you aren't sorry, the way he kissed me oh, and held me. Sick, sick, man. But that was the second time, me telling that story, you've just reminded me, there were one more time before them. Just push the microphone a little closer. So when, um, when, um, when I were working at SR Gents... I got a phone call uh, and reception, because we didn't have phones or all like that back then. Uh, somebody from reception at SR Gents came down to me and said, um, a lady's um, phoned up and give, left this number, she wants you to ring her. I thought, oh, can that be? So we had a public phones down near the canteen, and I rang the number and I said, hello. And she says, um, it, hello, she says, I'm Janet. She says, uh, I'm your dad's girlfriend. And I says, uh, oh, hello. She says, um, your dad's asked me to marry him. and he, uh, But before I answer him, I want to know if it's true what people's been saying about what he's done to you. And I says, oh, OK. Then I says, well, she says, will you meet me in, in, in Barnsley Market? Will you meet me in a cafe? And I went, yeah, I'll meet you. I says, but only if you're prepared to believe me and not waste my time. And she says, so I was about 17 now at this time in my own rented house. So she says, uh, yeah, I'm prepared to believe you. And so we arranged to meet there. We met in Minerva Cafe. And we're probably in that cafe for about two hours, telling her everything what had happened. She was asking me questions. And um, and then all of a sudden, after two hours, she just says, uh, your dad's upstairs in market. She says, do you want to meet him? And I, I, I weren't expecting her to say it. It was a shock to me. And I didn't know if to say yes or no. And I says, um, yeah. I'll meet him. And um, so I went upstairs. She came upstairs with me. She again went into the cafe like she'd gone into the other room, you know, when he comes. So she were never there, you know, it was just me and him on our own every time we had a meet-up. And then... Um, and then so we went and sat outside on these red stools, said red seats, plastic seats in top of Barnsley Market... And I said to him, uh, he was asking me if I were all right and stuff like that. And he says, what are you doing? And I said, I'd met somebody called Sam. My ex-husband, he was called Sam. He were a builder. My dad were a builder when he were working outside, you know, doing bricklaying and like stone masonry and stuff like that, dry stone walling. And... Um, and my dad did karate and he did karate. And just as I was saying it... I made that connection at that time, as I was saying it. I couldn't believe I'd met Sunday just like my dad. You married your dad. Who weren't as bad though? Not, not but as no, bad, yeah, but yeah, yeah. Oh wow! And um, and and I says to him, I says, "Why did you do it to me?" Because I used to, I used to cry, and I used to think, "Why me? Why have I had to? You know, why have I got this cup to carry?" And um, and I says to him. Um, why did you do it? And he says, um, it's because I loved you as a person and not as a daughter. But I didn't have it on record. We didn't have out like that. Mm. So he said that to me. So, so even when I told the police that, they didn't believe it. 
and, and they'd lost my original statements as well. Was that the second time you went to the police, you're referring to? Yeah, the second time I went to the police, yeah. So um, I left then, after that time in the market, I left then and then um, um, tried to get on with my life. I didn't go back and see him another time after that. Oh, and then um, I got married and I had my children. And then I, I left I left my husband when Ella was three and Jake was seven. So this was around about 2005. And um, and some told me I need to go back to the police again. I were in so much therapy and I couldn't leave it. So I went back to the police again and reported him. And then um, a police officer called um, Sonia Strafford. She come to the house and, um, and she told me that um, they'd lost all my original statements from back in the 80s. And that I couldn't, um, they couldn't bring a case forward because there was nothing to compare it to. So I begged her to let me make another statement. So um, she says, uh, well, go on then. And she told me to do it at home. So I'd probably done about four pages, I think, I remember doing, trying to remember. And so... She come to pick the statement up and I said, I've not finished it. And uh, and she took these four pages and she um, she rang me up a few days later, something like that. She says, uh, I've gone to the CPS with it and the CPS has said that there's not enough evidence. And I went, I'm not surprised there's not enough evidence. I went, I've not completed the statements. All I said to you, is this the kind of thing that you want me to write? I says, I didn't tell you it was complete. You know, obviously, you know, there's not going to, you know, and there's my brother's statement as well. And um, and she wouldn't push my case forward. And I remember being on the front lawn when she rang me, telling me that they wasn't going to pursue a case. And I was so angry and I was crying on the lawn and that I couldn't believe it, how they were closing the door on me without even trying again. So carried on trying to get on with my life again, um, doing um, parenting courses, uh, working in schools voluntary, doing a bit of um, uh, reading with the children, with the young kids. And I enjoyed that because I could see parents coming in and out and I liked to watch how their parents had their kids and I liked to see how the teacher, you know, taught the children. It was like showing a whole new world to me from what I'd been brought up. And then um, um, I went on um, a, a course, uh, access course, psychology course in Barnsley College. And I started to learn about Maslow a little bit and about the um, Jaharo window and about Freud. I didn't like Freud's theory. <laughs> that, that triggered me a little bit. And... Um, and I was just starting. These are the things I wanted to either get a job while I was with the dad or go to college. But he says, no, you can't, you know, and any money I earned, I'd still have to ask my husband for every penny I wanted. So that, I, I had to end that marriage. And then, um, so I was just trying to make a life for myself. And then I went back to the police in 2005 and then they did that to me. And all the time here, I'm actually on the sick with post-traumatic stress. So even when I was married to my husband, I was on the sick. So when my son was born, 
I'd gone on the sick with post-traumatic stress uh, and with, um, um, what do they call it, postnatal depression as well. And then, um, so this gives me opportunity to start going on courses and um, I started um, um, going to, like, Barnsley College and trying to get an education and... But then I jacked that in and I started to feel frustrated with myself because I used to not be able to complete anything. I never felt confident in ever being able to do anything by myself or, you know, I never thought I'd be successful in anything or quite negative. And so focused on what I was really good at, which was being a mum, bringing as, as much as I could. I wouldn't say I was a perfect mum, but getting Jake and Ella to school as often as I could. My son... Um, he was in and out of pupil referral units. He used to have a lot of anger issues, so he used to um, um, smash the library up in schools and he used to have to go on um, um, anger courses and things like that. Then it got where the social services um, um, were involved and they were saying um, that uh, the reason the children were like there was was because of me, so they put the children on the at-risk register, saying that they were being emotionally abused, physically amused, abused and abandoned. And what it was, as well, they were going to the dad's big posh house, he'd been able to make his millions while I looked after his children because he wouldn't look after them in the week. And uh, his, dad, his dad told him that I had Munchausen's disease. So I was putting on to my children what had happened to me, when in actual fact, Ella didn't know what had happened to me and Jake until later on in life because, well, I say later on, our Ella was th 13 and I went into my bedroom. I'd been somewhere and Ella was crying, my daughter, on, on my bed. And she'd gone to look for some paper to do some work for school, something like that. And she'd found my blue folder, what I'd had for years, that everything went in there for therapy. And she saw it and she was crying and she says... Mum, don't worry, she says, if I were 13 or 35, I'm not too young to understand this. She says, and you deserve a medal. She says, not for what's happened to you. She says, for what for concealing it from us. She says, but now I understand now, when you get drunk sometimes, why you behave the way that you do. So I actually kept it from them, you know, as long as I could. But, the, but I was struggling to bring them up because... The dad were causing a lot of anger issues. And when I got divorced, my divorce cost £32,000. He fought me for kids, for business, for the house, because he couldn't accept that I were leaving him. And when the the courts had us in this little room, she had us um, court mediator, I'll never forget her name, Vera Moore, got us in this little room for three hours, tried to sort the access out, the money, maintenance and everything like that. And... To no avail, it was so hard, he wouldn't agree to nothing. And when we come out of that room, she gave me a big hug and she says, you're dealing, she says, I wish you all the luck in the world, sweetheart, because you're dealing with a little boy in long trousers. Whatever you say black, he will say white. And while ever you've got kids to him, he will make your life hell. So not just hell from my past, my childhood, I, it were hell bringing my kids up. Yeah. But the, And then the social worker said... That she should never have said that to you. You know, there's nothing wrong with with the dad, and you know it's your fault. Basically, they're trying to say, you know, why your children are like they are. What was the impetus for going to the police the fourth time, and how old were you? So after 2005, I went in 19, 
um, 84, 2005, and then I went in 2012. So in 2012, I um, rang the police and asked them to open the case again, couldn't move on with my life. And, um, and it were affecting my relationships. I still haven't lived with anybody since my ex-husband, since that, that time. I'm still living on my own. I've had a few, couple of relationships but not lived with anybody. I don't have trust to live with anybody. Plus, I'd heard Miriam Stoppard back in the 80s talk on her programme. She was a doctor, Miriam, and, she, and it always stuck in my head what she said. She said that a lot of abuse was going on in the family homes by stepfathers because mums were inviting them into the homes without really getting to know the relationship. And so a lot of children were being abused because of that. Anyway, I went um, to Jordan Solicitors because I saw this advertisement for um, child abuse lawyers. I thought, oh, that might be able to help me. So I contacted them in Dewsbury. And then so they wrote to West Yorkshire Police anyway, and said that we got corroborated corroborating evidence and um so never got anything back they ignored them so the uh, so the the wrote again to them police ignored them again and then um and then unbeknown to me i didn't realize this that actually jordan solicitors was wanting to sue me dad and they said that you can't sue a man with a house made of straw, something like that. Well, I wasn't doing it for the money. So it looked like, when I looked at it years later, when I saw read the letters and saw how it read, that it looked like to the police probably that I was after his money. But I hadn't asked for any money. Like, I can show you the letters. And um, so... I don't know if that's the reason why the police completely ignored them because I'm mentioning that now because when it actually got to court, that's what they were trying to say, that I was after his money, that it never happened. And anyway, um, so the police wouldn't do anything again. Oh, and what happened in... Yeah, so the police wouldn't do anything again. And then in two, and what the police said to me was, um, what I would have to do is if I wanted to push the case forward because I'd lost my original statement, so wouldn't let me make another statement, they said I had to find other victims of Appleyards. So I did. I went and found his niece. Did you know at that point she was a victim? My mum had told me that he'd, he'd been abusing our, one of our neighbours and his niece, yeah, my mum told me. So and was that around the same time of your abuse? This was, she told me years later, so I didn't know about it at the time, that he was raping other girls. When he was raping me, I thought he was just raping me. But I didn't even know it was rape, what he was doing to me. Mm. And so uh, they said I had to find other victims of his. I found a brother, and my brother put me in contact with her. And then, um, but she said she'd, she'd, she'd found peace with my dad and she'd made it up when her mum were dying. And that she she'd already been to a already been to a court case with a friend of hers um, who'd been raped by one of her family members, and it got thrown out of court, and it was an horrendous trial, and she couldn't put herself through that again. She didn't want to put herself through it, so she didn't. So she wouldn't be a witness for me. Mm, yeah. So Quite a few victims do that. Yeah, 
very common. And then, um, and then um, somebody come forward and said that a police officer, retired police officer, had seen a letter in in the nineteen eighties at the side of my original statements saying these statements need to be destroyed because they're an embarrassment to the family. So some of my 17-page statements need to be destroyed because of the embarrassment to the family. And in 2012 as well, um, I spoke to DS Barnes, I think it was, and I get mixed up with police officers, and... Um, and he says to me, why do you think... Um, I was trying to tell him about witnesses that could, you know, come forward to my case. And he says, um, why do you think they would uh, investigate your case? He says, when they won't investigate anybody else's from the 1980s. He says, and your statements haven't been lost. And Sonia Strafford said they've not been lost, they've not just not been found and D.S. Barnes said, they've not been lost, they've been destroyed along with everybody else's back from the 1980s. Oh, my God. So everybody's have been destroyed. So that was the fourth time, was that then? And then how, what, how did it get to the fifth time? And then the fifth time in, well, it were a, a roll-on, so there were 84, 2005, 2012, 2014, so they shut the lid, lid on me on them times. And then in... 2014, or was it 15, 2015, um, I, I, I wrote my book and I named my dad in my book and I climbed Kilimanjaro in, for a charity close to my heart and uh, I'd read a lot of books, uh, The Courage to Heal and The Child Within and lots of books to try and heal from my trauma and uh, all the counselling I had, I used to say to, him, to my counsellors, well, I, when am I ever going to stop crying and my anxiety and, and, and that was so bad. And, um, and I said, why do I cry so much? She says, because you've been terrorised. And I hadn't understood that I'd been terrorised so bad, so badly. And because it were all normalised to me. And when I was trying to read these books to heal, um, it didn't help me. But... After leaving the dad, I start. First thing I did when I left the dad was buy a tent and I started taking my kids off camping. And we found this place in Hope Valley near Castleton, and we spent years just you know going there. And it, it just felt like I felt like there was some hope in my life that people were being kind and nice to me, and I'd found my faith at this part. So I was starting to feel stronger, and the therapy and that. And then um, um, I'd. I'd, I'd done some sky. I'd done a skydive for charity, for the Bluebell Hospice, and I'd I'd, I'd, um, I'd done a, a play for charity. So that was building my confidence. Um, I'd been given the part of the Barnsley witch <laughs> to play. Can I do my Barnsley witch accent? Yes. Go for it. Hungry are you, my pretties? Convince <laughs> 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 it. And so, but I was chosen to do Macbeth when I was 10 years old, play a witch then. So I think I'd practised it then at that point. And I remember my dad going out when I was 10 and going into the woods with me and making me a broomstick from a piece of light tree and put on all the twigs 
So there were good times about my dad. It wasn't all bad, you know, he didn't do bad things. But I remember I couldn't actually play that part because I got appendicitis mm. and I had to go into oh. hospital and put my appendix out, so I missed that part. Mm. And um, so I um, played that part and uh, we had one evening and two afternoons where people from surrounding villages came and paid to come and watch my friend Catherine Clark, she uh, wrote it, mm-hmm. carrying up the yellow brick road, tongue in cheek of, of uh, tongue in cheek of um, Wizard of Oz. Wizard of Oz, yeah, mm-hmm. it's so funny. And I played Madge, so I was uh, the started it where you go. We was on the Killjoy Kyle program, you know what they call it? What? What's that one? Kyle, Jeremy Kyle. Oh, Jeremy Kyle. We called him Killjoy Kyle <laughs> on the program, and we <laughs> we were I was sat on his settee. And uh, in this play at the beginning, how it started in me in my track suit, we sat with uh, mourning about having to bring two kids up on my own while ex-husband Bruce mm. had chuffed off to Oz. <laughs> but she's written it into you know to Oz, Oz were Australia mm. left me to bring kids up on my own, and then uh, as that happened, then uh, whirlwind came like it does, and they took the settee off the set, and I come on dressed as a Barnsley witch. Then, <laughs> oh wow, <laughs> it's brilliant play that she wrote. She's very talented, <laughs> and then um, so yeah, I did f- all this as like, and then going to Northern College, and when I went to Northern College, the first course I did was um, they do weekend courses for you to go and learn with confidence and punctuate with confidence and they did these weekend um the first course i ever did was um um what, what did they call it because it was on um criminal psychology a short oh. criminal psychology course and it was talking about on camden market there were these um children and i got one of my first jobs working on barnsley market serving fruit and veg you know like you do when you're a kid babysitting jobs or market jobs and stuff like that and um, um, uh, and the and the, the um, story goes with the um, subject. The criminal subject was about these boys working on Camden Market, and they actually come from a good background. Not like an house, you know, like mine. Come, these boys have come from a good background, and they've gone to work on the market. And unbeknown to them, the guy was a paedophile, and he got them into drugs and alcohol. And then got him meeting his friends, got him into the paedophile ring. And then um, parents couldn't understand why the kids had gone off the wall, you know, after chat with the behaviour and stuff like that. They ended up in and out of the judicial judicial system, getting into trouble and stuff like that. And uh, so that's, you know, I suppose that um, gave me another side to... Because I don't hear anybody talking about incest and rape because it's taboo. And then in 2012, I'd had an earlier operation and I come downstairs and put the telly on and I heard this lady, she was on Newsnight, on BBC Newsnight in 2012, and she was speaking about how incest is rife in England and not enough is being done about it. So that left a, a mark on me and it, it, it never left me that. Because then I felt like I had to not just work for me for getting justice, I had to go and work for all the poor children who were out there who were being ignored, their voices were being silenced, and I knew if the police were doing this to me, how many other people were they doing it to? Mm. 
So I couldn't get over. And this is one of my driving points, what kept me going back as well. So when my book came out in 2015, when I wrote that book, I took a diary up the mountain, up Kilimanjaro. I did it for charity, not knowing I was going to name my dad in that book and that was going to be a catalyst to the next time I went to the police. So all this is like, it's almost like the universe had something in store for me before I knew it. And when I climbed that mountain, I did it in memory of the Lily Millie Foundation. Their daughter were born with life-threatening illness and needed 24-7 care. My sister Donna needed 24-7 care. So I wasn't just doing it to help them open respite centres for their daughter and mums and dads to come bring their children and support each other. I was also doing it for, for Donna, for me, because when Donna were put in that children's home, she shouldn't have been in a children's home. She should have been in a respite centre. She had severe disability. She shouldn't have been there with other children who they were abusing her, but what abuse had they suffered Why they was in there as well? I always remember her talking about this girl called Vanessa and she used to pick on her and bully her and Donna used to be scared to go back there and, you know, what lads were doing to her and things like that. So when I, when I, come, back, when I come back from climbing the mountain and I kept a, a diary of all my observations of what were going on around me every day and then I went on safari and I went on safari by myself... And then um, I put it all on the computer. And when I got so far through it, and now I made the dream come true, I got to near the end and I said, uh, I said to my friend Graham, who would help me write it, well, he'd, you know, put it into a proofread it. And he says, um, he says, um, you can't put his name in. I said, I'm going to name my dad in it. He went, you can't. I went, why can't I? Why can't I? And he says, because it's against the law, it's illegal. And I went, I don't care if it's illegal because I'll get him in court one way or another because I wanted him to sue me for liable. I wanted him to get me in court no matter what. He went, well, do it then. And I did, and I put his his name in twice just for good measures. <laughs> <laughs> and how did that come? So, so people who read, I did a book launch. Yeah. So I did a book launch and it was successful. I ended up publishing the book myself when I took it to a publisher she took all my passion and personality out of it she told me I got a talent and she says I'm gonna edit you it and proofread it your two foot price of one so I thought brilliant I'm a Yorkshire lass I like a bargain <laughs> I say you buy one you get one free <laughs> and so I thought that were brilliant what she said because it were expensive, it were £150 just for first proofread and £1,500 there on to get it to publish, she said, thereabouts. So when she gave it me back, she says, uh, I want you to read this and think, wow, who's written that? And alarm bells went for me because I thought, no, I want to read my book and think, wow, I've written that. Mm -hmm. So when I read it, I, I was disappointed that she took a lot of my funny bits out as well, you know, my sense of humour or... Took your or, voice out of it. She yeah. took my voice and even the emotional parts out, you know, what were in there, and I couldn't understand it. So I decided, it took me three months to go through it with Graham, from what I'd originally wrote and what I had, you know, and what she'd put, to put it back in. Although there were a few good things that she did change, and I've still put her in there as the acknowledgement, because I can be a bit harsh when I speak, so it was good that, you know, she did help me, you know, take a few things out there that didn't need to go in there, because I can take my anger out on other people as well. Mm. And um, so um, then I needed another proofreader, 
And then, because um, I decided to do it myself, and you kind of get snow blind, like you get word blind. <laughs> so I needed another proof. You'll know what that means, don't yes. you, Sean? Then you're laughing because I've got Constantly your book. Constantly trying to I've edit your, your book, book, and then you lose sight of it all, don't you? It's just blurred in your head. <laughs> blurred, yeah. yeah. What about the writer's block? No, the opposite no. of that. You're editing it so much, your brain just starts to freeze up over it. It, it literally does, and you're not sure if you've repeated yourself or whether you need yeah. to put that in again or it's where. It's like over-scrutiny causes the brain to do funny things. <laughs> so you start handing it out then to the people yeah, for them to read it. Yeah, because they can see it from a clear perspective. Or even if you put it to the side and leave it for years and years and then come back to it years later, you can see it clearly again. Yeah. But if you're reading it over and over and over, it just you, you lose your ability to look at it rationally. Is that what you did with your book? Yeah, you do. You have to you gotta have other people come in and, and look at it to keep you in on track. Wow. See, that's what that lady should have done. But she took took everything out so I couldn't like like even when I was in Amsterdam when I was getting my flights over to um Africa and I stayed in a hotel. And it's called a hotel. Yeah. She changed it to hotel as if I were too stupid to not know what you know, that just there were a lot of things there. That, that's a minor thing, but I, I can remember looking at that thinking, no, it's not a hotel, it's a yotel. Like, stop changing things, you know. Did you change it back? Yeah, obviously I changed <laughs> it back, yeah. So, um, so how did this lead to the fifth? Handing it to the police. So I took it to the um, um, police for the sixth time because um, I did my book launch and after that people were starting to come forward who had read my book from the village I left. And like one of my neighbours, she remembers my dad saying to her when she were about 14 over fence, has the father brought you in yet? And also she come on holiday when we were a little girl, when I was little and I can't remember her coming on holiday and camping, we always went camping and she was brushing her teeth in the doorway of the tent and she spilt some of her toothpaste on a T-shirt and my dad had said to her, what's up, did he miss the gob? Oh. So, and so people were, and then another lady come forward and she remembers the love bites. And she thought, I can't imagine Elliot Appleyard wanting her da- his daughter to be having love bites on her neck. And she'd seen him holding hands with me a lot as well. And one time when she were, he were holding hands with me, used to, and it, um, my dad turned around and said to her, which she found strange, um, don't worry, she's only holding me hand because she likes to hold me hand, something like that. So she thought, well, what are you on about? I didn't even said, oh, but, she, you know, she likes to hold me hand. And he used to take me to the pub. And I used to get dressed up older than my ears and... Things like that. He'd take me. We'd go and see turns sometimes, and and I used to be able to smoke cigarettes and drink beer and go to pubs from a young age. Because I was, like you said, I looked older than my years. I acted older than my years. Being brought up, and one of my friends said in court was a witness. She says, when I met Carol, I couldn't under, I couldn't believe how domesticated she was. She was able at sixteen with her own house, you know, to be able to do everything. So then um, when um, what happened was, how it got there a fifth time, really, uh, the sixth time, um, I was going out with somebody and um, 
I ended that relationship and he was upset about it. And he come round to my house and he wanted to speak at 12 o'clock at night. And I was in bed and my kid, answered, my son answered the door and he said, I want to speak to your mum. And I had Ella come up to me and my, my son Jake and said, uh, want, oh, it was my daughter. It was my daughter, yeah. And she says, um, um, is he, uh, you know, I'll not name his name. And uh, and she said, he wants to speak to you. And I said, uh, well, I don't want to speak to him. And it's bloody, you know, after 12 o'clock at night, I want to go to sleep. So she went back and said, she don't want to talk to you. You know, she's in bed as well. So um, he wouldn't take no for an answer. And he comes through the door, pushed her away, pushed the door open. And my daughter's boyfriend got in the way of him coming up the stairs. Halfway up the stairs, got in the way of him. And he headbutted my my daughter's boyfriend, and uh, he headbutted him, and I think his um, his his lip went through his his tooth went through his lip, and he ended up with a bruise on his forehead or something like that. Anyway, at that time, I jumped out of bed and said, "You know, get out! What you're doing? Like, get out! You know." And uh, so he got out, and um, there was a bit of a fight. And um, I phoned the police and um, police came and um, they asked if we wanted to press charges and we decided on not. I'd said no because I felt like he was going through enough from me breaking up with him and he was going through a divorce and with his son, I didn't want him not to get custody of, or not custody, but visitation rights and stuff like that. And so I decided not to press charges. But because I'd phoned the police and they'd come out and we told them that, um, so they went and saw him and stuff like that. And then, um, um, the, um, domestic violence from the police rang me then and said, uh, are you okay? Do you want to like, um, do you need any counselling? And I says, um, I said, I do actually. I says, he's triggered me off from, he's triggered me violent childhood you know, my past from a child, from a violent childhood. And um, I says, I'm, I'm struggling with it. And she says, what, what do you mean? And I told her what had happened from, from my dad. And, um, and next thing I knew, um, she'd gone and told the police. And um, the police had arranged to come out and speak to me about it. But what I think had happened, I feel like I got through the back door with the police. Definitely. That's a black back doorway. I think if I'd have phoned the police and wanted to report it again, I don't think I would have got through that last time, you know, because they'd shut the door on me so many other times for losing the statements. Also saying in 2005 it come out that I wasn't a credible witness, witness because... The question my credibility about my sexual act- sexual activities. Mm. So that's another reason why CPS closed the door in me in 2005, uh, 2005 because I questioned my credibility about my sexual activities. That's what I was told by Ian Thorns in 2015. Well, we, the obstacles we can't get over, Carol, is it would be an abusive progress. Uh, uh, it would be an abusive process because. 
he's already been investigated in 1984. I know, but he hasn't been investigated in 1984. Where's the proof? You're saying everything's gone missing. The police said they've been out to his house, but if they'd been out with forensics, they would have, you know, found they would, but they never did. Have, they were, they were never arrested. So it came out that they couldn't prove whether he'd been arrested or not. So I used to say to, so I said to the police, and this is what my gripe is now, because I've got a civil claim against the West Yorkshire Police for 35 years of serious systematic failings to investigate my case. Why didn't they just ever ask me, Dad, if we were arrested in 1984? It's not hard. It's not rocket science. But apparently my dad turned around and said he wasn't. So if he wasn't, why wasn't he? And why did they do all them forensic tests on me? Why did they lose the statement or burn it? Why did they say that they needed to be destroyed because there was, you know, an, an embarrassment? My dad were a police informer, and it's not, it's not just from me. Everybody, there's, there's nearly everybody in village and surrounding village, villages knew that he was a police informer. Do you know who he was informing on and how that came about? Um, he used to inform on um, people who'd been out drinking and driving, even though he drunk and drive. And I didn't understand it because, like, apart from renting land off Richard Ellis, Chief Inspector, retired Chief Inspector Richard Ellis, he rented land off Judge Pickles. He got that land off Simon Walter Fraser. And um, that's a part of my life I don't know. Was he a Freemason? I, I, not as far as I know. Did he know any? I just know that, like, when I was a little girl and when I nicked biscuits, if I took a biscuit without asking, a police officer once come to house and said, and I remember hiding under the table, and said that if I pinched any more, that he'd take me to live, he'd take me to care, take me to live in care. So my dad, so my dad had brought one of his police officer friends to come and threaten me when I was a young girl. It's almost like Savile, isn't it? Had mm. complete control of the police, do whatever he wanted. If he's... Was he quite a manipulative man? Obviously, he was with yourself, but with all the officers and people he prefended. Okay. I, well, I feel like they were all blackmailing each other. Because they were all doing that kind of activity. And... Because I, somebody, a lady, come forward to me and said, "We've got." Um, she kept her horse on a farm, and she got a mum and a stepdad at home, so things weren't too good at home with with the stepdad. So that were a. Uh, escape time to go down and, and see a horse but um my dad had all these like he, he rented land off another farmer which he kept pigs on it as well and um and she used to go and see a horse and this farmer used to say if you don't give me a feel i'm gonna go tell your mum and dad because he used to play her with cigarettes and alcohol i'm gonna tell him you've swore or you've had a cigarette or something like that and on this farm, there was a fishing syndicate from the police. And the police used to ask her for her as well and say, go on, give us a feel. You've let him, you've let farmer, give us a go. And so farmer had obviously told police. And my dad were in with all farmers as well. So it's one big group. Mm. Mm. So you've got these witnesses then have come forward because they've read the book. The police have got interested. What was the next steps? So um, Alex Wilson came out and interviewed me. Uh, not took a statement, he interviewed me and uh, I, I told him, I showed him my book and I asked him to read the last part, the epilogue and I sat quietly while he read the last part of it and then um, I, he, he took details of what I was telling him had happened and then um, 
He said he'd have to go back and speak to his sergeant about it and see whether they're going to investigate. And this was um, in September, early September um, 2015. And then I, I, I never heard anything from him and I kept ringing to try and find updates and things like that. And then um, eventually... And I were wanting them just to let me make a statement because my original statements had gone missing. So that's all I wanted to do, <coughs> give me a chance to make another statement from the ones that they'd lost in 1984. And I've been all them years, just, just blooming take a statement from me. And they did take a statement from me in 2014 because I'd had bowel cancer. In 2014, I got bowel cancer. I had nine hours of surgery. And then it was, wasn't long after that uh, that I climbed Kilimanjaro. And then, uh, but you can read all about that in my book. And um, and so when um, I went to the police in 2014, and it was when I was going out with a guy who came to the house to try and get back with me, it was when I was going out with him at that time, we were watching telly on a Sunday morning, and I think it was a Ma programme or something like that. And it triggered me off about child abuse again. And he says to me, I'm not having you living like this for the rest of your life. He says, come on, we're off to police again. We're going to report it again. And he took me to Normanton Police Station. And it was only a couple of months after having had nine hours of bowel cancer surgery. And they made me sit for five hours on these cold metal chairs. And for five hours I was sat there. Somebody behind the desk said to me, don't go because if you go... They'll not take you as serious as they would if you were actually here making your complaint. And I made, they finally decided after five hours, they found somebody to take me, and it wasn't a statement apparently, listen this. They got this young officer, this woman, female officer, took me in a room and I thought finally they're doing it. So she started writing, probably about seven pages, passed it on to Sonia Strafford and it had gone back to the original one from 2005 and 2012 give it back to her, I went to the police station and uh, she says to me, well, it wasn't exactly a statement. She says, you never signed it. And she refused to look into it again and use oh that as a statement. Oh, my God, how evil is oh, that? Cow. Yeah. Mm. And I, to even the, to this day, I can't, from, I want that. So they won't even tell me where that statement is, you know, for part of my civil claim against them. That seven pages or what it was or four pages, what I get mixed up. But yeah, for that time, I were in there about an hour and that police officer, she wrote all them. She said, it wasn't exactly a statement. And I think it was her who mentioned as well about I'd lied in my original statement in 1984 about how many people I'd slept with. And like my barrister said, it wouldn't matter how many you slept with, it's about what your dad's done to you as well. So what was different in 2015? Was she not an officer anymore? In 2015... Uh, Oh, yeah, when I've done Freedom of Information, she was still an officer. I've seen her names on there. And uh, Bert, what happened was Ian Mottershaw, that was Alex Wilson's supervisor, he's part of Old Boys Network, I believe. And uh, it, then he was the supervisor to start with, then it got changed from him being the supervisor to Ian Thorns, another supervisor who was a lot younger, who I feel, you know. And um, so, but and he wouldn't let me have contact with him. I, the only contact I had was with Alex Wilson. 
no other there was sergeant bria she like sat in on this on when i made the four-hour video statement finally they let me make a four-hour video statement in second of november and i just rang up that day and i says are you gonna let me make one and he says oh i were arranging it coming tomorrow so it wasn't, it was the fact that I'd pushed it again, nothing had been arranged, because you'd give, you'd obviously give somebody more notice than that, wouldn't you, if you, if it'd been arranged. Mm. So I know that that were a big light, well, just because I kept pushing it. Anyway, I pushed it and I went in there and I made my statement. And then I started recording phone calls with the police because the police were bullying me, so I've got hundreds of phone calls from the police trying to pacify me, tell me that, Say arranged to go out to see a witness, but they didn't go out and meet him and they didn't let the person, the witness, know that day that there wasn't. So I've got all the questions, all this is going in my next book. And um Is it is it legal to publish any of those um phone calls? Yeah. Could we could we perhaps include some of that in this? Yeah. 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 Wow. So yeah. stay tuned to the end, we'll put the some of the phone calls in at the end. Yeah. Even when I went to the, um, um, when I made a complaint to D. Collins, Chief of Police, and it took me months to write it, or it got to a point where I went, I went to my MP and said the police are fobbing me off, they're not investigating properly. My MP told me to do a chronological order of from when it started to present day. So from 1984, and I've got these, it's all going in my book, We've got the chronological order for when it started. And um, so he was writing to the police. I got in contact with Chief Constable, uh, no, um, Police and Crimes Commissioner Matt Burns-Williams. And the only reason I got him involved, it's not about what you know, it's all you know. I sold my book to somebody on, on, on Pontefract Market and he happened to be one of the best friends of police, um, police and crimes commissioner Matt Burns Williams, is um, his friend Eddie. They used to go to races together, <laughs> and he'd read and and he liked the style. I sold him a book when I'd met him on Pontefract Market, Brian Lewis, and he thinks I'm cheeky. He likes the style of how I sell my books. <laughs> so I'd like said, "Oh, I'm a writer. I've written a book because he's written lots of books." And uh, and I said, would you like to buy it? And he like laughed. He says, yeah, I would. I'd buy your book. <laughs> and yeah, but he hadn't actually read it all. But he does uh, creative writing work workshops, and I went to one of them. Uh, he did a literature fe- literature festival in Penniston, and I went to his workshop. And I saw, um, I met his friend Eddie, and that he bought my book. And then Eddie says to Brian. Um, um, have you read that book? And he went, no, I haven't read it all. And he says, uh, you need to read it. And he read the book and he said he found it believable. He says it was that part where you were laid on the rug in in front of the fire. He says, you just couldn't make it up, what you were saying, you couldn't make it up. And he believed me and him and his mate, because that is Mark's best friend, they kind of made a pact to try and help me get justice. So you've got all these different things coming together then for the sixth attempt. And then how, how did it progress? And then I'd done the chronological order. Uh, I'd made my statement. Um, um, I'd asked the police 
I'd put names forward in my statement. I'd witnesses. ask them to, witnesses and stuff like that. The police wasn't going and investigating when they said they were going to, not turning up and not asking them to everyone as well. And at this time, he was in the press at a school in Huddersfield. At this time? In 2015, mm. they were working yeah. in an infant school in Denverdale, where I grew up, oh with kids. It, it, it made front, front, front page headlines at the Huddersfield Examiner. My dad went out with Lord Mayors, Jim Dodd. He went drinking with mayors, councillors. He had a dodgy, dodgy solicitor, Daryl Murnag. You can Google him. He got distraught off the bar for criminal activities. Um, Did you contact the school? I contacted the school in um, after my dad got sent down. Somebody had already contacted the school and um, I'd, I've alleged a paedophile ring to the police. And when I got my dad sent down, I rang Ian Thorns, who was supposed to have been investigating my case against my dad. And, um, and I rang him and I says, are you going to investigate the paedophile ring now that... Operation Hydrant had asked them to do it as well because I'd come up to the independent inquiry in 2017. You know, the government independent inquiry into child sex abuse. I should have had a two-hour meeting with them. I were four hours and I've got this recorded meeting and they've told me I can't give it to anybody because I've signed for it. Not, and the police have got to write to them if they want this this recorded meeting as well to listen to. But I asked for it. When I've just gone up to the recent inquiry, because it's closure meeting for it, I noticed that the other people who were victims of abuse when they were younger, they didn't get what I'd got, but they didn't ask for it. But I did. I said, I want a recording of this, you know, and I want a statement when I went and did that. So I, and so they said, they passed my, my um, four hours on to their legal team. Legal team had passed it on to Operation Hydrant and Operation Hydrant had passed it on to West Yorkshire Police. That's what they do for them to look into it. West Yorkshire Police rang me and said, we're happy we've investigated this case. I went, you're happy you've investigated what case? They went, Operation Hydrant have passed on to you. I went, what, the case against my dad? Yeah, well, I'm not happy you've investigated it because you've put the lid on it. That actually, I've got... They'd actually sent me dad a letter and the CPS had made a decision in 2017 not to charge me dad. And I've got the decision meeting, you can see it on my YouTube channel, not to, I mean, my daughter, my son were in that meeting, my friend Julie, my brother, and they decided, I'm sorry, Carol, but it's not what you want to hear, but we're not going to charge him. You should have heard in that meeting. Mm. That all needs transcribing from my book as well. It's disgraceful. Anyway, so what I did was we said this you have not heard the last of this yet uh they said to me you can do your right to review so i did my right to review you've got three months to do it they actually gave me the letter out of the five days of what they should have given me it in as well oh wow yeah so and it said so if you do your right to review you know it could take longer because you haven't done it within the five days and they also told me for that meeting, and I've got recordings of this as well, Alex Wilson rang me and says, we want you to come into the station. CPS have made a decision. Oh, no, I want you to come into the um, um, station for an update. I went, an update? You've never asked me to come into the station for an update ever. Why would you want me to come into the station? Is it a decision meeting? Have you got a decision? No, it's not, Carol. Are you sure it's not? No, but we might have one by tomorrow. 
that he'd already got the decision and told my ISFA worker from the independent sexual violence advisor and told her because he told her to come because he didn't want me to come with my family and I wouldn't have had anybody with me or legal representative because he lied and said it wasn't a decision meeting, it was an update. And I've got all that on report as well, on record. They just stopped, never stopped lying to me. All the way through, they never stopped lying to me. Why were they putting constant hurdles in front of you? Why? This is what I've, why I've got an investigation. And now it's gone to the West Yorkshire Police twice through police special standards for them to investigate the 35 years of serious systematic failings. But they've not even done the investigation properly because they should have taken a statement from me and they still haven't from my complaint against them. And they still haven't actually interviewed, interviewed the officers. They've just given them my questions and they keep coming back and upholding some things and not others and I'm like well that should be upheld and like well legally you can't argue that one Carol you know I'm getting and stuff like that because our law is an ass so how did it get to the trial then so um it got to the trial because I did my right to review and I had lots of meetings with Matt Burns Williams police commissioner and um, and I did my right to review, and then my dad had got an harassment charge on me. The police were investigating me at this time for harassment. Criminal. People have been doing things to his house, setting his van on fire and his garage and spray-painting outside his house, Elliot Appleyard is a paedophile, and where he was um, a president at the village club, Payal, where people took their kids for birthday parties and stuff like that, where he booked parties, somebody had written on it's a big white building, Elliot Appleyard is a paedophile. I find it quite funny that he had to get up on his ladders and whitewash all that back off. Mm. And, and he got, ki- he got t- kicked out of the school. Mm. I don't know if he did get kicked out of the school. Oh, didn't he? Okay. He didn't get kicked out of the school, no. They protected him still. Yeah. It was probably some other victims who were doing that. People who've read the book, it was spreading, wasn't it? Yeah. People finding out. Yeah. I never found out how he ended up leaving the school. I know how he got kicked off uh, committee because he refused to leave at the pie hall and they had to get a legal team to get him off because he wouldn't go because they said, look, there's this book. Somebody posted that book through there <laughs> and I don't know who posted it because when I'd launched it, they bought it and they posted it everywhere. Good. And, but he yeah. was accusing me of harassment as if it were me doing it and it wasn't. I hadn't done none of these I'm sure things. you thought about it, but no, it was probably... I hadn't victims. even thought about it because no. what I did was when I read that book, I posted it to my dad's wife. Through him, I wasn't doing nothing behind his back, cowardly. I weren't being secretive about nothing. So I'd actually posted it, wrapped it up and put it to his wife because I knew if he got it. So when she read it, they didn't even know it were about at first. <laughs> the power <laughs> Did of Did you words. hear from her? That's when I... Oh, yeah. Uh, no, no, because that was years after, wasn't it, from when I was 16. So, no, I didn't, I didn't hear from her. But, yeah, I did hear later from her because in 2017, when... He'd got that harassment charge on me, accusing me and all these things. He and they put wrote him a letter, the police. I've got that letter, that's going in my book. It's gone out on social media. Alice Wilson wrote him a letter saying we are not in capital letters going to charge you. 
But he put my name on it, whereas they couldn't put his name on the... When he would, they couldn't legally put mine, his name. When CPS told me they're not going to charge him, but they put my name on there. So what my dad did then was he went and stuck it on lampposts all around Embiddale and in oh. pub windows. And he typed something on the bottom saying, making it look like it was the same... Document, yeah. Yeah. And he put on it, we are now... Carol Higgins is now under investigation. And he spread it all over the local area. As if I'd been, like, accusing him for nothing, you know, trying to turn tables on me. And anyway, as as he were putting it in this... uh, Did you get any backlash from that? As he were putting it in this pool window, my friend's son were were making his cup of tea in the morning and he were looking through the window and he saw Janet run out at van and get a sticky tape. Bobby Dad was sat in van and put it on their pub window where I'd had me... Second book launch in Denver Dale. <laughs> <laughs> I'd gone to have my second pub look, uh, book launch there to, to face my demons. And so I could, and that's what I'd done it for, to face my demons and to conquer my fear as well, because I had a great fear of him. And when I used to see him in Barnsley Market, I used to nearly collapse. I used to go, I couldn't breathe, I couldn't, you know... I've, and then, you know, I spent years wanting to shove my fist down inside my pit of my stomach and pull all this evil out and just make it... You like that Poltergeist movie where that maggot just runs... I just wanted it to go away and I could never get rid of this vile feeling inside me, what he put inside me. So what, what was it like then, going to trial? So, um... I, um... I got, when I did my right to review, and um, he'd, he'd got, or he come to the, um, let me just tell you this bit first. He come to the car boot sale in my village when he got an harassment. They'd put a lid on it, not going to charge you. Then, this bloke, who, who my dad used to keep, my dad, this bloke, his dad used to keep, uh, his dad rented my dad land and my dad kept pigs on his land. So then pictures, there's acid baths on there. There's that knife what I handed into police. There's that chloroforic acid. There's like my dog behaving like that. My dad's had land with pigs. I find it. there's all them kids' bikes on there, mm. all them bonfires with kids' clothes, all them outbuildings. Cats, my dad hated cats, you know, with cat food. There's latte cups. Then when you put them pictures on there, it's, for me, there's something dead. All, this, all these different people that he rented land off as well. There's so many of them. A lot more going on. I thought they were all farmers and they're not. The judges, the, the um, you know, chief inspectors or Canon All Estates, you know, lot, um, things like that, as well as farmers. Does make sense. So what he did, he, uh, when they put the lid on me, they, they weren't going to prosecute in that decision meeting. It's on my YouTube channel. Um, this bloke, his dad, he friended me. And I thought he were a friend of my other friends from Denbydale. And I needed some wood for a fence building in my garden. So he, he says, oh, I can build fences. And he says, have you heard of Kingsley car boot sale? Fitzwilliam car boot sale? And I says, yeah. He says, well, we might, I, I can come through and we'll get you some wood from there. We'll get some wood from there. So I thought, fine. And he come through in his van. And, um, and I got, he were on some of my friends' Facebook as well. So I thought he were legit. And when, when he took me there, he started talking about, we were looking around and he started talking about my dad. What would you do if you saw your dad right now? He said, I went, I feel like you know him more than you're letting on. 
And he says, no, I don't. He says, I might say hello to him sometimes, you know, when I see him. He says, but I won't, I don't have out to do him. I don't like that. I went, oh, seems a bit weird where you're going on about him. Anyway, um, we'd looked round and I'd looked for some wooden stuff and we'd called and got a cup of tea. And then uh, that's when I said that. And then uh, he says he wanted to go and pick these shorts up, these army shorts that he'd seen. And he says, you go, and I'd said, I want to get some veg. You do that and I'll... And then we'll go back to the car. And I went, no, I'll come with you because I want to carry on looking. I, mean, I love car boot sales and I ain't looked properly for years. I ain't been there for a long time. No, he says, you go and get your stuff. And I went, no, I want to come. I want to look at some of my stalls. So he couldn't stop me, basically. I can get my veg on way back to the van, I said. You know, and we hadn't seen any wood. Anyway, um, so we walked past this stall to get to this stall where he'd seen these shorts right at top of the field. And we walked past this stall and I hears him say, hey, up. So I looked up to see who we were talking to her and I looked and it was my dad and it were her. Both of them like doing this car boot sale. And this is when he got an harassment charge on me and this is only a mile from my home where I live and he'd come 20 miles from his home and he's got an harassment charge on me. So when I saw him, I put my head down and nearly walked past and I'm thinking, what are you doing, Carol? You've been trying all these years to get justice and you're just going to walk away from this now and you're going to walk past this opportunity and you're just going to leave him. No, I don't think so. And I walked backwards and I saw him and I says, what are you doing here? You've got an harassment charge on me. You've just like got a lid, you know, the lid put on, you know, close this in, um, investigation and you've just come here to rub my face in it, haven't you? That's what you've done. I says, you raped me. And he was saying, no, I didn't. Then I started shouting on top of my voice. His wife started shouting at me saying, go away, go home. I went, don't you start. You asked me to come to, to meet you in Barnsley Market all them years ago because he asked you to marry him. And and you said you'd believe me. I says, you, you know, and she going, uh, you're lying, you're lying. And I says, no, I'm not lying. And she come round front of the stall with a pair of garden shears and she shoved them in my face. <gasps> she put these garden shears flush up in front of my face. She goes, I'll have you. I'll fucking have you. Oh like this gosh. with me. <gasps> anyway, my dad brought her back round. He come round for her and brought her back round and sat back down and she lit a cig up. And uh, and then uh, and and uh, and he's saying go away and she's saying I'm a liar and I says so if I'm a liar how come when you were still laid on top of me I said to you what would my granddad do if he knew what you just done to me and you says don't worry sweetheart I believe same as me that all fathers should break the daughters in like Nathan but I was shouting it I wanted people to know I was saying it a lot louder than I am now and everybody was stopping and looking and that's what I was saying and he went. Um, so he come round front at the stall then and he put his head in my face, his nose touching my nose like that, exactly the same as her, and he put his face on my face and he went, I'll fucking have you, I'll have you, I'll fucking have you, like that to me. Oh, my, oh my God. And I went, go on, do it, do it. I just kept my hands down there and I did the same to her and he had to walk away. And I was shaking and I saw that, I saw that bloke Mm-hmm. And he got my bag and he'd actually, he'd actually said to me, will you hold my keys? Because I've got an all in my pocket. And he got these all these bunch of keys. Will you hold my keys? Because I've got an all in my pocket. 
So I would have been going back to that van, wouldn't we? East Keys. Anyway, so it got, I'd got some um, weed fertilizer, something like that. So he got my bag and I, and so when that had happened, I went, give me that bag to him because I felt something dodgy had happened then, something funny. And uh, so I could walk away and he says, you've got my keys. And I thought, oh, yeah, I have, haven't I? And I got his keys and I chucked them down on the floor in front of him. I wish I'd chucked them across bloody car, but now, <laughs> thinking about it, yeah. I chucked them down there. And uh, and uh, then I started walking away and my dad went, see ya, oh. like that to me, waved to me, sit by, little girl, go away, little girl, like that to me. So when I was walking away, I got my camera, turned round and took a picture of him. And from then on, that picture went viral. I've got millions of people all over the world watching me. That picture told a thousand words. And when I put that on my Facebook in 2017, there were people from all over the world saw that. You can see it because I've got two, still got that I've picture. Got, yeah, I've got a Conquering the Impossible site and I've got my Carol Higgins site. They're both open to the public. But you can see on that, they get, they get thousands and thousands of views all over the world. 70-odd thousand views are... Well, it just like it just went, it just went mad that picture. Are we able to put that picture on? Well, yeah, I'll get it. Yeah, <laughs> I'll get it off the Facebook. Yeah, yeah sat what on. What does he look like in it? Uh, he was wearing a burgundy jumper, rough as all. The nickname Red, Red Fred and Rose West. That's what the people in the village nickname him. Oh. So and then um, I phoned my friend Jeremy and I says, um, "He won't mind me saying this." And he, I says, "I need, I need you to pick me up." And I picked me up and I went back to his house. And then obviously that fueled me to do my right to review even more, make sure I do all that. The police wouldn't invent the, the police wouldn't uh, investigate him for him threatening to kill me. All that I've got all the recordings from that, how they covered up that one as well. Saying that they couldn't investigate him because the CPS had got an harassment charge on me. We were waiting for the CPS to like make a decision on whether I were going to go to prison or not, or be charged. So if I had got my dad sent down, I wouldn't be doing this now. I'd have probably been like Melanie Shaw, you know, where they put me, shut me up if I hadn't. So I wouldn't be able to do what I'm doing. I'd have to put, I'd have to shut up. That's what, well, that's what they were trying to do to me, to make sure that he didn't get justice in 2017 and they were trying to shut me up, you see. Also, I'd get sent down, but I did my right to review. And in 2019, and what I did was... Um, in when I did my right to review, because he got that harassment charge, he did it himself really because they had me in on a VA, and the, and I've got these on my YouTube channel as well, the Inman tapes. You want to watch, you want to listen to them. And so on, uh, what they did was they rang me up, and I was doing, I was a youth worker, I was volunteering doing Duke of Edinburgh with teenagers for Wakefield Council, and I was out doing. Um, uh, uh, a bronze, I think, expedition uh, expedition with them. And I got this phone call. Uh, Can you come to Homeforth Police Station uh, to do a VA? Well, what for? Well, we've been here in... Um, you've been selling your books and you've been uh, telling everybody your dad's a paedophile and harassing them and stuff like that. And I went... And you've been putting leaflets on people's cars. Somebody got these leaflets made and putting them on everybody's cars, <laughs> saying he's a paedophile and you need to go to a certain page in a book and stuff like that. I didn't know who it was. <laughs> <laughs> so, oh. I like, and you've Sounds been... like you had some great support. I did have some great support, <laughs> yeah. 
so I, uh, so, and, and there were one time I went and, and, and I did go in this pub and I was talking to people, but the landlords of the pubs were telling me dead that I were doing these things that I wasn't doing. So it makes me think that there were more to the paedophile ring actually because of the people who were going back to him and telling him that I were doing stuff that I wasn't actually doing. When I was talking to people, he were accusing me and going round telling people, you know, and selling me books, but it, it all come from a conversation. You know that it come about. You know if I if I sell a book or something like that. Anyway, um, so it was this harassment charge, and uh, so I had to. He told me to come in on a VA, and I, I and I hadn't never done a voluntary attendance before, and he told me to come to back door at six o'clock at night. They'll only be in there, and uh, it won't. He'll only ask me one or two questions. And uh, when he's done, I'll be able to go home and everything will be all right. If I deny everything, everything will be all right. So eventually I agreed to it. And then on the morning I was supposed to go, I woke up in my bed and tears were just running down my eyes. My heart were going, I was scared to go. Something just didn't feel right. And I phoned Alex Olsen up and, I, and he knew about it. And the, the conversations that went off between them two as well, he couldn't get involved apparently. But yeah, it's his name on the harassment warning. And it were him who said, we've been gathering evidence against you. And it were him who I've got my complaint against, one of them, because he actually didn't go out and take the statements when he said he were going to do and all the other things and lied about the decision meeting and everything else. There were loads of things. So eventually, um, you can hear all these recordings on my YouTube, eventually I um, had the VA. I refused to go to Unferth for it and they the, the threatened to arrest me five times. And then um, uh, in Normanton, my friend said to me, and um, my, one of my good friends, he says to me, Carol, you can't go to that interview without a legal representative. And uh, he said, I didn't need, the in, uh, Inman said, uh, the police officer says, no, I says, don't, I, I need to get a solicitor. He says, no, you don't need to get a solicitor unle unless I arrest you. And I want to avoid arresting you. So just come into the police station. And I've got all that on record as well. And the uh, independent police <laughs> who investigated it just says, oh, well, he just didn't know the law at that oh, time. Well, he should know the law. He's, he works for the <laughs> didn't police. didn't know the law for 30 years. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So I um so luckily my friend advised me this and he give he told me his solicitor and I got I got him and he come with me and he'd he'd already seen so he come in with his VA and he'd already heard the recording of that man saying we'll just ask you one or two questions and if you deny it we'll drop the charges but and he heard that before we went in and when we got in there I was in there about two hours you know giving like. They got a pile that much of evidence that they gathered against me. <laughs> so he's actually lied against me. Oh, but I God. was scared to go to one for the police station because in my mind, my dad were going to be there because they're all the police and, and all Kurt Burton, Unferth. These are the stations that I've grown up in that my dad's been able to have his guns took off him for threatening my mum or other people with him or any violent crimes. He's always got away with it. And I've known that. So I didn't go to that police station. They all knew him. And you, you know, he just, he drank with them. People told me he used to drink with police and they'd like be sneaking in a corner, whispering and then going to the toilets together and stuff like that. So, so eventually, um, 
when I did my right to review, they got me into Dewsbury Police. Oh, we went to CPS lawyers. I got meetings in Leeds to CPS officers in to Crown Prosecution in Leeds. And what I was saying was, I don't believe that the police have been giving the CPS all the evidence. That's what I was griping about. I didn't believe them at all. So I wanted to know how much evidence the police had actually given the CPS for them to come up with that decision, not to prosecute him. What have they actually got? They can't possibly have come up with that, you know. The... Anyway, so I went to um, Sarah Nelson, the CPS lawyer who said um, they're not going to charge me dad. She made the decision. She said, and the police said to me as well, you'll hear it on that decision. She's, she'll explain to you why you can have a meeting to explain She'll explain to you why. So when I went, phoned the CPS, when I got out of there, not going to charge him, I says, can I make a mate, have this arranged meeting? You know, with Sarah Nelson, CPS lawyer. She's gone off on sick indefinitely. Couldn't even, so then they told me that I couldn't have a CPS meeting anyway. They shouldn't have told me that, but even the police told me that, because if I were doing my right to review, it would jeopardise my right to review if I did. I went, well, why did you tell me that I could then? Anyway, that's when I got in touch with my MP again, and Police and Crimes Commissioner again, and saying, like, why did you tell her this then? Because it says it in, you know, the decision, and why, so they got it so I could actually have that meeting. So I got went to Leeds, to CPS, and I took what evidence I've been collecting, what, I, what they should have to the police. But I didn't realise that that wasn't the right to review. I wasn't meant to give them that then. That's not what they wanted. It was just this decision meeting to tell me. There's only certain things that they can tell me. So I had this meeting and I told them, this is what you should have. Anyway, we come away. She says, put it all in. And there's a lot of other things happened in between. It'll all be in my next book. But... Um, I got a phone call by the police and they told me to come into Dewsbury one day. Me and my daughter and my friend Graham, my daughter Ella, were coming to the police station, sat me down and they said to me, um, we've overturned the decision. And my neck started shaking like this. <laughs> I just started shaking. And, and, I, and, and I went, I knew it. I knew you wouldn't do it. No, did you hear what I said? <laughs> I said, yeah, you're not taking it to court. No, we've overturned the decision. It is going to court. I was so used to him saying no. I thought they'd said it again in the way that they mentioned it. And from that day onwards, my, my heart started hurting. Oh. I had a pain in my heart. So bad. I'd fought for so long and now it was happening. It was it like, that's my dad. You've broke my heart and you've, you've put me through this. You're making me go through all this. And before my body's held stress and, you know, anxiety in, you know, in different ways. But I'd never had, never had such an intense pain in my heart. It, it, and for months, and I would go into doctors and I said, there's something wrong with me. It won't go away. And she says, Carol, it is stress. I says, well, I've had stress all my life, but I've never had it like this. And it broke my heart, making me do this. And he denied it all the way through. Anyway, we had to have pre-court and he denied that. I've got that paper, newspaper thing, you know, it didn't, it didn't denied that. Then um, the day of the trial came and um, I'd, um, I'd stayed in that New Year's Eve, so it was in January 2019. I'd stayed in that New Year's Eve, I was on my own and uh, I put the Premier God channel on, on the telly near midnight 
sat, put it on randomly. And this lady says, um, there's a lady just tuned in. She's just turned telly on and she's going to court in 2019. She's taking her dad to court for incest and she needs to know that she's going to be all right. Don't worry, you're going to be all right. Oh, my God. I know. But before then, me and my son, and we were sat on settee and we heard this voice and it went, beware of the steps you are taking. What, you both heard a voice? At, at the same time. I looked at Jake and Jake looked at me. Was it on the TV? Or? No, no television on. No mobile phones on. Creepy. Yeah. And then at that point, you know, I was like, please, God, help me. I was going through a lot of stress and I got on my floorboards and I, I just wanted to pull the floor over my head and disappear. And I said, please, God, help me. And I wasn't on that floorboard anymore. I were a white horse. I felt the woof of the wings and, the, and my belly went, the expanse of it all. And when I read later in Bible, it means victory, one horse. <laughs> oh. And he was saying, you're going to have victory, but I didn't know that. So what was it like the first So all day? these spiritual things were happening to me at the same time while I was fighting evil, good were fighting with me. <sighs> Up to this point then, how many years? Was it Yorkshire police that protected your dad? How many yeah. years? 30 years, was 35 it? Year. 35 years. 35 years? Yeah. <gasps> I mean, my hat goes oh off to you God. for continuing to fight this case. Indeed. I mean, most people probably would have given up on the first, second oh, time. And I cannot believe this went on for 35 to on. years to get to this yeah. point. I couldn't when I got to the age, when my daughter got to the age where it was happening to me, I was struggling what, with that as well. Oh. There were too many things for me not to go forward. Like yeah. I knew other people were being abused by him and by his friends, by the syndicate and stuff like that. And then we got to court... Uh, the morning of the trial. Was but, he there? And did you, have to, did you have to look at him and everything? I'd, I'd, before, I'd seen him in pre-trial because I didn't have to go to what him. What was I, that like I, seeing him? I in went the, to in all the of them. I, 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 didn't, I, I saw him. I saw him. I weren't scared of him anymore. Was he was he pulling nasty faces at you? He were. Fred um, and Rose West. He were. He were trying to avoid me. He got police protection first time. He, he went did he? to court. Yeah, we had him take him in another room while we sat out there because I were always wanted to be in public space. I mean, because they used to say to me, "We'll put you in a room, in a, in a back room," you know. Was I'll put you in a safe place. I went, no, you won't. I'm walking through them front doors. I'm not walking through a back door in car. I'm not going and sitting in a room. I'm sitting here in front of it all. I've done nothing wrong. So we go we go um, to pre-trial where he got to, like, where they hand him is what's on the indictment, 15 charges on the indictment, five charges, charges of internal rape, five charges of oral rape, well, that uh, uh, oral rape and masturbation comes under, comes, um, under indecent assault. Even though it was a lot more than that, it happened nearly every day. Mm. And um, so they read the charges out to him. We couldn't go in the room. We were all sat outside. Anyway, denied him. And then they give him the date for court, which were going to be nearly a year later. And then uh, so... What happened then, the barrister, Peter Hampton, and he was the one who prosecuted the um, Rotherham case. You know, the Rotherham grooming gang, yes. Peter Hampton. Mm. What a lovely man he was. He took charge then, didn't he? When CPS made a decision to turn it over, they gave it to him outside. And um, he got me in his chambers as well. I asked, I need to come and see you face to face. And I saw him in his chambers and he says to me, what do you want from me, Carol? And I went, I want you to be just straight John Bull. Mm. That's all I want. And then um, 
he made them go and gather the evidence in that they hadn't been gathering. And then, um, and I won't go into all that because it'll take too long for me to end up getting, it'll take too long. That's all going to be in my next book. And um, and then um, he got me to court. Uh, we, we got we got to court and then um, uh, the first day I wasn't allowed in because the jury had to be sworn in and then they had to listen to my video statement that they edited down to about nearly two hours, something like that. And then um, I wasn't allowed in there on that first day. Then um, I made sure my friend went in there to tell me, you know, they're not allowed to tell me what's happened. They didn't tell me what was happening, you know, can't do all right that. And, um, but swore that, but just so I knew everything was like being done above board and stuff. And then, because obviously I was used to it not being. And then, because um, my dad's been in court before and it's been thrown out, you know, when he's, had, he's held guns to people's head and the neighbours and the police have witnessed it and he's, it's gone to Bradford Crown Court when Judge Pickles was actually the judge there. And then the ladies have been, um, the, the case has been thrown out when my dad's been holding guns to somebody's head in the village, um, you know, in, by saying the ladies weren't paying the poll tax and... So the, it got thrown out of court then. So my dad's got a criminal record, but he's never got any convictions. Mm-hmm. So he ain't got a criminal record, but he should have. That's what I'm saying. He'd been in a lot of trouble in the past. And then, um, so on uh, on the second day, that's when I had to get in and put, and be put on the stand. And um, and I've just got the transcripts for that. It were an eight-day trial, and it's cost me £5,400 for them to cut that court transcripts to have them transcribed, so I've got them, so I know exactly what went on in court. Good for you. And mm. uh, that's all going in my next book called The Trial. That's going in. It's, be, it's, in, it's, like it's all been edited, We're all, you know, it's all being done at the moment. And then um, his, uh, my barrister started off um, talking about the tattoo he put on my back. My dad put a tattoo on me. And the name of the dog, you see, my dad were trying to make out and the police were trying to make out that I'd had the name of the dead dog, the sheep worrying dead dog, on my back. And um, so he started questioning me a little bit about that and then his barrister set on me then and uh, started telling me, I put it to you, that he didn't do this and, he, you know, he didn't do that and he didn't do all these things. And, um, and I'm yes, he did, yes, he did. And then um, um, I came down and then um, my mum had to go up then. And she kind of lied about how we'd been beating us when we were children because she used to beat us as well. So I was scared that that were going to jeopardise my case because she was saying opposite to what we, me and my brother were saying. And um, that... I mean, some of the things she was saying were, were, went went for me because she was saying that he had said to her when I were a child, he believed all fathers should break the daughters in and she just thought it as a weird comment. Did she say that about the kissing? When he came clean? Well, Paul, Paul had seen the kissing. My mum hadn't seen the kissing. Okay. Oh, yeah, yeah, about on the doorstep when I told her about the kissing. Yeah, yeah she said about that. Good. Yeah, Good. she said about that. So there were things that she'd said that went for me, but there were things. And she was saying, because I said that my dad work, it didn't work, he worked on side. He did work, but he worked on side a lot of time, and she made out that he did work all time. 
and that uh, proper cushioned, you know, jobs where you like get a wage packet. But he didn't. So she'd lied twice then. And I thought, so this could discredit me. And then my brother got up on stand. And then, because uh, none of these could see me, what they couldn't hear my statement because I was the first one up. They, these witnesses come in after they've given evidence, they can sit in the gallery then, you know, and listen. But my mum never come and listened in the gallery. And my mum's husband who she's been with probably 20-odd year. He were an ex-prison manager in a prison. He managed a prison in Aylesbury. He never come into the court and listened, because I'd, I'd want my husband in there to, if I were being accused of something, if I hadn't done it. So she never got him in court. She, must, she told him to wait downstairs in this room downstairs. She, so she didn't have him in court. And my dad didn't have Janet, his wife, in court all the way through. So neither of them wanted them to hear what were going on. And I wanted my niece, my sisters, to collide her daughter. She's read my book to come into court. And she said she couldn't come into court because my grandma, uh, her grandma, my mum, had said to her, you'll get, a, I don't want you to see, Carol. Carol's going to get annihilated in court. I don't want you to see her get annihilated. And because she asked for it, because she shouldn't, because she, she shouldn't have kept going back. She kept going back to her dad's. Now it were worked out in, with me talking in the trial I never went there and back. I went back that once. And when I left, the, my mum and dad were trying to make out as if I were backwards and forwards all the time, and I wasn't. It was just that one time when I couldn't go back then when I went back. So they were tr- always trying to make me out as if I asked for it. And even now my brother says to me, he won't talk to me, even though he's a witness, he says, because if... You want to be my dad's girlfriend, my dad would still be my hero. So all this family breakup now, incest is like putting a nuclear bomb under the family. Mm. You can't pick up the pieces, it's impossible. And there's not enough done about it like I saw on the news night in 2012. And that's why I waive my anonymity in court and why I speak about it now, because I know familial rape, even though grooming's bad and any kind of form of rape's bad, it's it's like it's the biggest most rapes that ever go on most amount of rapes ever go on is in the home mm. and there's not enough being done about it and on the indictment for my dad them 15 charges of rape i says to my barrister why isn't incest on there and he says to me because incest carries a lesser charge than rape because it implies the child is complicit. Oh, my God. How can a child be complicit? <sighs> They're making the law as if you're of age. Because I wish somebody on the street had raped me, because if somebody on the street had raped me, I would still have my mum and dad to protect me and look after me and help me recover from that. But when it's your mum and dad, and you've got to live in your own house at 15, and you've got no family, no aunties, uncles, no grandmas or granddad, I didn't have my mum's side at family because my mum's mum committed suicide when she my mum was 21, and there were all abuse on that side, and we weren't a close family. So literally, I had no one except myself until I had my two children. And when I divorced me, the dad kid's dad, their family divorced me for me divorcing their blue-eyed boy, so they wouldn't help me out. So literally, me by myself raising my family. Didn't I hear in a previous interview that your dad's girlfriend, Janet, laughed in court when he got sentenced? Yes, she did. She she laughed at me because when... um, when it, when when the judge was doing it summing up and he talked about 
the the box in that land is there where the tin box was. My dad had a tin box, I'm a tin box, and he kept things in there that he molested me with. And one of them was a Polaroid camera and an airbrush and underwear, porn magazines. And when it when when the judge talked about him taking pictures, naked pictures of me with this Polaroid camera in the summing up, she laughed at me. Goes back to Fred because Morris, because right? when they were doing interviews, you know, he says, "What did you think about when your dad showed no remorse? He didn't show any remorse all the way through the court case. He just denied it, denied it, denied it. And what he said was, he couldn't have raped me that night. There's no way he could have raped me that night. Is because when he come back from an, from from America shooting on that upper hunting trip in Appalachian Mountains, he says he couldn't have raped me because I'd had an orgy in his bed when I'd had a party that night. I'd had an orgy." while he were away, as if to say, well, I wouldn't touch it if she'd had an orgy kind of thing. I couldn't, I couldn't have raped her because she'd had an orgy in my bed. I ain't had an orgy. I didn't even know what an orgy was. That's still a really, really bizarre comment for a father to make. Yeah? Yeah. What was it like? And the fact is, the police deny me justice were what he were coming up with, as his evidence, as his defence. So, so understanding the trial, and he just denied everything, didn't yeah. he? Yeah. Yeah. And what about the jury members? What were their reactions to what was going on? Well, one of jury members, she were, uh, I think she were a plant. We ended up uh, having eight jury members, not 12. She turned out. Well, when I was stood in the stand and I saw everybody, I was told I couldn't look at the barristers. You've got to look at the jury. So they're asking you questions and you've got to look there at the jury. And I was looking at this one woman out of all of them and she just would not stop sticking out in my mind. She was just like, where's Wally, you know, stood out in like a sore thumb. And anyway, uh, after so far through the case, um, two officials ran into the court, probably on about day seven, third, six, seven, two officials run into the court, stopped the court case, judge ordered that everybody gets out of the courtroom. I sit there in waiting area and my heart was pounding like mad. I was thinking, what the hell's going on here? I can't have this court case stop now. What's going on? And um, anyway, um, my barrister um, got me in room and he says, um, we've had to take the jury down to 11. There's one of the members. She's pro- She's been working in a hospital. I'll not tell you which it is. And, um, and um, she's been telling people about the case. And somebody from the hospital, I think it was Jimmy St. James's stuff, it, I'll say it, uh, in Sheffield, and somebody from the hospital's phoned down and said that um, your case has been spoken about because, and remember, I'm on social media as well, I'd already gone public with it, so it's a bit of a complex case, this, how the jury had to be sworn in and if they'd heard about it, they hadn't got to be any part of it. And because of the transcripts, you can see all this procedure, you know what they went through. Anyway, yeah, uh, so I think, and so the judge says we can either stop the trial and retrial it or we can go on with eight. And um, and when I, when he got me in room, my barrister, and told me this, and I says, I feel like I know which one are you going to tell me who's done it? And he says, well, we can't go into that now. He says, we've discussed it and we've decided that we're going to go on with eight Forget about what's happened. Just get on with the trial. 
And when sure enough, when I got back in there, it were her who were missing. <laughs> and she just looked like a family relation. She looked like one of my cousins who given evidence, a video evidence. I got 10 witnesses giving evidence in court, you know. I had 20 witnesses to give evidence in court and my barrister whittled it down to 10. And I had 10 witnesses come in court that, you know, and they put the lid on me with all these witnesses all these years. And the statements, and I said to my barrister in that little room, I said, why did you take this case on? And he went, I'll tell you why, Carol. He says, because I believed your video statement. But why didn't they believe my video statement when they put the lid on me in 2017, when I gave it in 2015? It were credible. And all the other witnesses that had got something to say about what they'd seen and heard and stuff like that. Mm. They'd done everything to cover that case up. What were you feeling like towards the end of the trial? All the way through, I were, it were like, I didn't know whether I were going to get it or not. And I weren't allowed to discuss it with anybody. Um, so I were, I were tired. I were, um, I'd get home and I opened my Bible and I were, I were reading um, Proverbs. And my Bible were reading to me every day, you know, through Proverbs. And, um, and I um, looked out my bedroom window and there were always a star outside my bedroom window. And I called it the Star of Justice. <laughs> I'm getting upset now. <laughs> and uh, so and I never knew what was going to happen. And then um, towards the end of the trial, um, what happened was um, the judge told us all to go out and have some dinner, told the jury to go out and have some dinner, told them how he summed it all up. And then um, it had to be all or nothing. So every single jury member had to say guilty. If one said not guilty, can you imagine if she would have been the one who said not guilty? Mm -hmm. Trying to make it, you know, so imagine. And then, um, and then uh, they got us back into court and... They'd made a decision within an hour and a half in their lunch break. I thought we were going to have days, hours, you mm. know, waiting for a decision meeting. And they brought us in and um, brought me in. And then um, and my friends, you know, in public gallery and family and stuff like that were all there. And um, the um, jury started the first first one. Then, oh, and then my dad was stood there at side in public box in this glass frame where you stand and um this this um dock guard she was stood at side of him as well and um and my friend had seen him go like that on a shoulder on this guard's shoulder and she looked at him and she went he went who's that and uh she went like that and um i call him grim reaper it, what Grim Reaper, he were already there, but apparently the judge is not even supposed to know, is he, like what the result is until before. So unless I saw that wrong, there was something, you know, because um, that's what my friend told me she saw. But I, I, I didn't see that because I got my eyes fixed on the jury. So when the jury got to give the first verdict and they went guilty... I was like, oh, my God, oh, my God. And I was like, I've got to wait now and see what second one says. Guilty, all charges. 
And I had to wait while all the way through, you know, for each and every one of them. It was one of the worst times of my life. And then when final one smashed it and said, like, guilty. And I thought, yeah, you're going down, mate. And then the uh, judge started talking about it. I can't remember if we all cheered. We're like, oh, just sighed. I can't remember wow, whether we all wow. cheered. And um, and judge says, uh, take him down for sentencing next day. So he weren't even going to be on bail. It was sent. He got to be. At, we went back for sentencing next day. They brought him up for sentencing next day. Anyway, he was there in his uh, prison clothes, grey tracksuit. Fantastic. Moaning about his medication and stuff like that, how it worked right and stuff like that. And uh, and they sentenced him to 20 years. And uh, it was the best thing that could have ever happened to me. Waiting for that, yeah, for that, you know, decision were one of the hardest things, but having heard that, it was one of the best things that's ever happened to me. And I just turned around and said to him when, when he took him down, I went, Are you, do you know what I'm going to say? Can you remember at car boot sale what he said to me? I went, see ya. <laughs> oh, yes. Yes, it just come to me. I didn't know, I've no clue what I was going to say. And he went, go away, little girl like that to me, that car boot sale, and it's ready yeah. to kill me. And they went, take him down. Yeah. I went, see ya. <laughs> <laughs> that's genius but, yeah. but if you'd have got slightly more years you would have done a lot more wouldn't he you yeah. were kind of there was, he still got a bit of a break didn't he he got a bit of a break because the judge said he got 22 years but he knocked a year off for his health and, his, and a year off for his age I think he was 72 when he went to court 71, 72 I can't remember and then um, and if um if he'd have got, and so so he only got 20 years because he knocked them two years off. But apparently if you get 20 year and three month or above, you've got to do the full 20 year. But because he's knocked him them two off, he's, got, he's only got to serve half, so he's only got 10 years. Mm. And he's on a cat sea wing in Doncaster. Cat sea. Thieves get cat sea. Cat Cat sea. doing his time. He'll be with all the sex offenders. Mm. I thought they were cat A. No, the sex offenders, it, 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 it's not A, B, C, D, it's wherever. At first he would in Armley, yeah. and then they took him from Armley and put him in Catsy in Doncaster, and I still think it's police protected in there. Really? I do, yeah. Because the inmates won't be able to get him. And plus, where he lives in Denverdale, there's a police officer, P.W. Johnson, who was a friend of... My dad rented land off Richard Ellis, Chief Inspector Richard Ellis. Richard Ellis' boss... Um, he, Richard Ellis was the boss, sergeant, uh, um, was the boss, um, inspector of P.W. Johnson, Sergeant P.W. Johnson. P.W. Johnson was the boss of P.C. Brian Fernley, who saw my letter go missing. These are public people. You can mention their names. They've, they're in the public. If they work for the public sector, they're allowed to be mentioned. And all these people know that they've covered up for him. And the thing is... When my dad were never arrested, never arrested, he was summons to court. So the police always said he never met the criteria to be arrested. So even to this day, my dad has still got his mobile phone, he's still got his computer, they've never house-searched him, they've never searched that land with all them photos on. 
And he's been, and, and when I come, when I got him in, when I got him in court and got him sent down, and I says to the police special standards who I've made the complaint to about West Yorkshire Police, and I says, are you now going to go and look at the computer? She says, unless anybody else complains about having child porn, paedophilia on his phone, then with nothing we can do about it. But he's just got 20 year. That's ridiculous. Isn't and they this, should be checking that property. Isn't this the same police that protected Savile? West Yorkshire Police? Leeds? Yeah, West yes, Yorkshire Police. Was, was, did you have to... My dad used to make me sit and watch Jim will fix it. And he used to make me stand and, and blooming sing God Save the Queen. And, but there were certain things like Top at Pops and stuff I weren't allowed to watch. But he used to make me sit and watch Jim will, Jim will fix it. He loved him, my dad, for some reason. Mm. How, how far from Leeds were you guys? Denbydale, not that far. So it was, the oh, same, it, was the, it was the same Savile police force then? Yeah. The police, Savile, yeah. That's, that's protected your dad? Wow. wonder if they're connected. Jewsbury, Bradford, all that circuit, it's all West Yorkshire, yeah. Kirklees. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. All right, we're going to, because we've got another guest coming, we're going to have to finish here soon. <laughs> yeah. Wow. Um, but I just want to tell you yeah. that this little... Because police have not been and got anything out of his land, you know, or his computers or his phone, even to this day, because I don't want to know what he's... Because he said, if I go down, I'll take 20 down with me, my dad said. Wow. So he's giving a hint away there. And then I've heard he's got a little black book and it's with this P.W. Johnson in the corner house in Denverdale, who keeps... Neighbours see him, keeps going and starting his big white van up, you know, like big gypsy vans I've like where he did his car boot seals out of. It's got this big van, so they've no forensics haven't even been and tested looked in that, nothing. So but he keeps coming and starting it up, turning it over to make sure it still turns over for it's like for when he gets out. My God. And he's got and I've been told he's got the little black book. If all happens to my dad in prison, that book's got to go somewhere. Oh wow, wow. this is insane. We're just scratching the surface here, aren't we? Yeah. Definitely. Good grief. All right, what, um, I'm just going to say something to the viewers and then I'm going to let you say something to the viewers. Mm -hmm. All right, so, good grief, you know, this has been an epic journey and we salute your bravery in in, in what you've been through. To go through this for 35 years and to finally get justice. And many of the viewers have watched Pure Evil Dad when we interviewed Maya. And one of the things that struck me about what you you said, Maya, when it was all over and it was come out, she went to her mum and she thought her mum would be shocked. And say, I'm sorry. And you know what the mum said? Mum said, how do you think I felt? He loved you and he didn't love me. And the mum was mad that the the dad loved the daughter and not her. I can relate to that. Yeah, yeah. Mm. So if you want to, you might might want to watch that one as well. I'll put the link in the description box. But um, this heinous stuff is going on all over the world. The justice system is completely upside down. Not only are the sentences too low, because in this case, you know, he got cut some slack and he's going to get out within 10 years. Um, Mayor's dad just wrote a letter to the judge mocking the whole system because he knew he was going to be getting out even sooner. And one of the things we are campaigning for in this channel is for the justice system to correct this because the root cause of crime are these foul human beings doing these things to kids and then these kids get traumatised and they get into drugs and they get into crime. We need it reversed these monsters need to be locked up for long periods of time, not the survivors of these monsters, which is what we see. They get into drugs and then they get the big sentences. So we're campaigning on this channel for that whole reversal of the justice system to focus on these monsters. And, you know, it's, it's the work of Carol, it's the work of, of, of Mayor that's raising 
the consciousness of what's really going on out there. And I'll, I'll, I'll hand it over to you then, Carol, to, to tell the viewers, you know, what, what, what you're doing and what your mission is. Well, right now I've got a civil claim with West Yorkshire Police with Human Rights Lawyers, the Centre for Women's Justice, for 35 years of serious systematic failings to investigate my dad. Um, I, um, like I say, incest wasn't on the indictment and I'm trying to change laws. I've already, newspapers have like, you know, written stories about, you know, how I want to do that because it implies a child is complicit. So there's no deterrent. There's no prevention strategies. There's no deterrent. I've, I've been up to, you know, for child abuse and incest is rife. And uh, people are scared about it. You know, they don't want to hear about it because they don't want to get involved or they might get it wrong. You know, you know, or they know the police, you know, don't want to really get involved. And, you know, but I don't understand why anybody would want to cover up child abuse. Boggles whatsoever. the mind, it? Boggles the mind. Adults know that, you know, it happens and let's not get involved and leave them to it. Or they're a scruffy family or, you know, I just don't understand it. So hopefully by me speaking out, um, I can raise awareness to incest and, it, and, you know, it won't be taboo. People find it an uncomfortable subject to talk about. Hopefully it won't. And we can, if we, if we speak about it out in the open and, you know, we can be adults and we can protect the children. And that's why I raised, raised, waved my anonymity and raise awareness. Because, and I also want to say that, you know, if this is happening to you, I would speak out. You can contact me. Um, hopefully um, you'll report it to the police and you'll continue to fight for justice like I did and never give up fighting for justice. And if you're listening to this on audio, the book is Conquering the Impossible by Carol Higgins. And what's the name of your Facebook? It's My Facebook's called Conquering the Impossible. My YouTube channel's called Conquering the Impossible. Or you can contact me on another Facebook channel, just Carol Higgins. And if you're watching this on YouTube, then all the links will be in the description box below the video. So please support what Carol is doing. It's such important work. Thank you for, so much for coming all right, today. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. Oh, it's all right. Oh, thank you. Yeah. Oh, give, give, us, give, us, give us a hug. Give us a hug. Yeah.